Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. It. <laughs> yes, the, the final episode. I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to stop doing this. About 25 weeks worth. <laughs> Awful of stuff you had to edit out. Thank you. Thank you for editing you do a whole my blather. Season out. three. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of me going, <laughs> um, to, oh, I don't know. God, Chris, you know, I haven't done any research, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole beat, like yeah, revolution yeah, yeah. number nine. Just cut yes. all that together. <laughs> it has been fun, actually. But what's, what's been quite weird, I've always found, is as I'm editing, you will text. Yeah. It's almost like you know yeah. somewhere your voice is being Are you being making played. me sound smarter? I hope you are. <laughs> yes, yeah, so just slow your voice down. Kai's <laughs> yeah. voice is actually quite high-pitched. It's true, but it has no gravitas or dignity at all. So Chris Put a lot of bass on it for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyone actually meets me in the street is uh, shocked and appalled. So thank you for staying with us over 24 episodes. Mm. I think today we're just going to conclude, really, aren't we? It's our concluding notes. This this is the wrap party, minus any kind of... Yeah, we're pretty scri- scribbed on that, haven't we? Mm. Two coffees. Sorry. Yeah, I've got a bottle of water. No. But um, it's a bit of a temperance wrap party. But yes, I mean, there, we're still... Minor bits of unfinished business, I mm. suppose. What would you like to start with? Because this is completely... Un- we're, not, we're doing a Badil and Skinner. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see just, how this goes. We're just showing up for this one. Yeah, we've got no notes. Only our episode orders, haven't we? Yes. I mean, can we, should we talk about that? Should we, should we get that? I mean, not so much our one. Let's have maybe a preamble to that. There are several running orders vying for... Not so much that this, this is the one. This is the dominant one. But yeah. Because, obviously, The Prisoner is a show that everybody, everybody can bring their own theories to. Equally, they can bring their own theories to, to which running order it was. It seems to be quite an interesting bit of... Uh, yeah, I quite yeah. like that, actually. Yeah, I mean, well, I did see one. There was the, the, there's the, obviously the production mm. running order, which is insane. Uh, <laughs> if anything, is the one that makes the least sense yeah. of all. Yeah. Uh, then there's the, the, the broadcast order, which, again, is slightly messed around a bit by emissions, living in harmony, not being on, mm. and stuff. It's not as straightforward as it seems. Then you have the, the Sci-Fi Channel had its own running order. Mm. Oh, a bit presumptuous, is yeah. it not? But then there's quite a few, you know. And they, they all start with Arrival and they all end with Fallout. Mm. And, and that's obviously perceived wisdom from a narrative point of view. But I'm going to speculate that you don't necessarily need. If this is a cyclical, uh, you know, this is a revolution in terms of circular revolution, yeah. doesn't necessarily have to start with Arrival and end with Fallout. You could start with Fallout. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but then again, neither does the film Memento with Christopher Nolan. Mm. It's like you fill in the information as you go along. So for today's storytelling, you don't necessarily have to start at the beginning. Yes. No, no it is quite interesting. You could actually conceivably have... The, Fallout could be the fourth episode you ever watch. Mm. And if the fifth one is the schizoid man, it still sort of makes sense. I mean, imagine starting with Many Happy Returns. Yeah. Because you're just as clueless as number six from an audience point of view. Mm. I mean, there's no dialogue. There's no Dr. Watson or companion to explain things to, is there? 
in the prison. There never really has been. It's, it's, it makes you do the work. Well, it would be a sort of um, a classic scriptwriter's play. Hmm. Is that like a ploy? <laughs> it's, no, it's, 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 it's the old uh, telephone play. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Return of the Pink? I am Emil Thotnery. <laughs> I have repaired your film. To actually start, basically, not so much in the middle, but to start mm. after the beginning of the action and then go back. Particularly in, in you see this like, in TV series, mm. it will start off. It's almost well, standard now. So action shows will very often start uh, at, at a you know, episode one, scene one, is a mm. scene of high danger between two people you have no idea. Maybe yeah. they're sort of holding yeah. guns at each other. And then it's and then it gets to that point. Kind of, and you sometimes episode two mm. is the beginning. So you, you, you know. Well, Lost starts, if you, if you look at the whole Lost story, Lost starts quite far down the line in the timeline mm. of events. And you, as an audience member, are introduced to, you know, already hundreds of years have gone by, yeah. you know, of, of, of uh, incident and action and plot points. And then the flashbacks fill them in. And I suppose Star Wars is like that to a certain extent. You, you join at episode four. Yes. And like, and when yes. I was a kid, I was like, what? There's another three films? Yeah. You know, but where are they? I know. Well, they, they sort of changed that, didn't they? It was, it was just Star Wars mm. until about, was it 81? I think um, it was when um, the re-release went around the time that Empire came out, I think. It became episode four A New Hope. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember seeing somebody, when I was seeing, finally got around to seeing Empire Strikes Back after my botched attempt at yes, Real. and you had to go see Tron. Yeah, I know. Mm. Tish and pish. Yeah, episode five. Yeah. Like, what? And then by the time it was on TV, it was mm. episode five. But there, there's a bit of a, a sort of, you see this on sort of uh, website things, whichever email you're on they have these in inverted commas news stories which is the best order to watch Star Wars yeah, in yeah. now and it's like well, oh yeah and people really? say I'll oh, just watch it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. well no. I, I don't know I think no but that's what people say isn't it yeah and then you've got the hatchet order you go, no no you watch four, five then you go back and watch episode two don't that's watch r- that's one that's right what's it called the hatchet order yeah something like that and then you watch three then you go and watch uh, Return of the Jedi cause, and people have these but the thing is it doesn't really matter because you can watch it in any order you want yes like The Prisoner you can watch it in any order you want I don't really see the point I mean I know we've come up with our own list mm. I don't really see the need to have a defined definitive list of episode orders Oh no! This is just for uh, for giggles. It, well, of course, it is. until it becomes. Yeah, but people spend years doing this. I I, I read a, a post on Facebook. Somebody said, "This is my order. What do you think?" I've spent many years curating this. I mean, fair play to them. You yeah, know, they've given a lot of thought, and there's some very valid. And of course, then social media being what it is. Ah, well, possibly it can't be because this hasn't happened in this hour. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. It's like, and you can imagine that poor guy sat behind his keyboard going, well, I've wasted three years of my life. <laughs> He's right. He's right, you know. <laughs> As he slides open the window of his 38th floor office. Yes. Stands on yeah. the <laughs> other ledge. Stephanie, take a note. <laughs> Note reads. Ah. <laughs> Is that with uh, two G's? Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Thompson. Or simply just a long list of A's. <laughs> Sir. Like Holy Grail, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Saint Arg in Cornwall. <laughs> but. Uh, no, I think, I think people do put a lot of stock into it. But the thing is, you know, I've watched them in different orders. 
And uh, it's I, I, at the end of the day, you, now we know what's coming. So it doesn't yeah. really give you any. I think sort of like the, with the Star Wars thing, the only the only thing is that if you watch it in like one to, to you know, in the mm. the new order, you just miss out on the the big reveal. I am your father. Yeah, but if you don't know that, I know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, but Kenobi's out at the moment. Yes, yeah, and of course that flashes back to when uh, Obi Wan and Anakin are, you know, Obi Wan and Anakin pre, you know, the events of this. So it's it just kind of just adds more context and texture but you know that these characters are never really in any danger or threat no it's, we've it's discussed almost, before do you think it's almost like every single line in star wars mm. at some point is going to have to have a series to back yeah, up to back where it, it up. comes from you know yeah. where did where did aunt Beru get that milk yeah. well <laughs> we want it on 12 systems <laughs> yes it's pondamaba and dr everson <laughs> it's, it's a comedy system it's a comedy <laughs> <laughs> but with this one Act, uh, yeah, uh, no, it just it just really doesn't make any sense. I think one of the the things that, that intensifies the, the interest around it is this idea that McGowan only wanted seven. Mm. Well, there is that interview that I've mentioned before um, with Howard Foy that's on Quite Media. You can buy it on on CD. He was mainly ostensibly talking about Columbo. And then I think it, they sell it at the prisoner shop actually. Indeed, um, but I think it's at CoitMedia.co.uk on the back. CoitMedia.co.uk, fine mm. folk. And well, yeah, he talks about the uh, the seven. He's kind of he's really there to talk about mm. Colombo and having just won an Emmy, but uh, mm. he manages to get McGowan to open up about the prisoner. And I think he he mentions the mm. seven, and I think he also talks about how other people keep saying, "Well, it's this seven. And so, ah, it's that, seven. that'll be the official prisoner companion. The uh, yes, the white and yes, Ali he, book. He, was uh, it? You can hear his heckles rise. <laughs> uh, but he does talk about this. I don't think I've. However, I've I, I've never found anything that where he basically says, I just wrote seven. Mm. I've kind of heard it alluded to. So here's, here's the pitch, Lou. Um, I want to do seven episodes, and then suddenly it turned into more. I think this gives a more weight to this whole, you know, with Mark Stein's influence, though, as well, isn't it? Mm. So if we, if we trace the timeline back to McGowan having this idea from childhood about the individual, about society, talking to David Tomlin, finding a creative soulmate there yes. in that respect helping flesh out those ideas because he trusted David, didn't he? He trusted yeah. that he knew what this was about. I thought, well, if I've got seven episodes, I'll, I'll go and see Lou Grade. <laughs> and Lou's like, yeah, we can, we can do it. Here's the money. But I want more episodes. Mm. It's got to be 26. And McGowan's like, I can't do 26. You know, I'll give you 12 or whatever, or 13 or whatever. And then the compromise turns yeah. out to be 17. So there's an extra 10 episodes added there, but that gives more weight to Mark Stein bringing in all these writers. Yes, yes. Gerald Kelsey. Yeah, um, Feely. Yeah, uh, to flesh out these stories with the theme or the, the, the semblance of a theme. Yeah. So probably more of the spy trope stories. Had there been on TV at that point anything like a seven-episode miniseries? <gasps> I, don't, I can't think of many. I certainly Not can't think of many ITC. Yeah, but these ITC shows, I, there, was, there was sort of seven, a, a mini-series. Well, I mean, you know... Uh, I think if so, maybe later on, stuff like Shogun. Yeah. And No, but not British. I can't... I mean, six episodes usually is, is basically, you know, confined to things like sitcoms. Yeah. You know, standard British sitcom. Oh, British, I mean, Americans. 60, yeah. Uh, like... Uh, Okay, I'll, <laughs> minimum 58 episodes. All right, done. Yeah. 20, 28 minutes or something like that, or 27 minutes, uh, for obviously to include ad breaks. 
but stuff like that. But yeah, it's like six times 30 minute episodes. And that's something that I think up until the advent of streaming was still kind of par for the course. Mm. I mean, I've seen sitcoms that have only had like four episodes. Really? Yeah, yeah, there's been a few. Maybe I think some new ones where maybe they just don't want the budget to be, you know, to go over budget and say, right, we'll give you money for four episodes or whatever. Four episodes? Wow. Because I'd imagine so after you just think, well, it's been cancelled. Yeah, but it, today, wouldn't, it wouldn't be cancelled. Today, after. everything's on the table, isn't it? I mean, like Diane Morgan. Have you seen Diane Morgan's uh, sitcom Mandy? Yes, like I've seen it. Fifteen-minute ones, aren't they? They're yeah. Just... Well, that's. I think that's that's something that's coming. Who's the girl called the Pink Panthress? Mm. Is she a pop star? No idea. My daughter knows all about this. No idea. She she writes songs that are like, like thirty seconds long. Is a pantheress a thing? Shouldn't it just be the Pink Panther? I. Maybe there's a copyright problem with that. Let's <laughs> yeah. back to previous impersonations. We don't say doctress. She's a pop star. She got had yeah, so much like no. Lady Dynamite or, or Professor Green. Yes, yes, I know for a fact he was not. He was. He did not have a doctorate or work in a university. And yet he called himself Professor. I know. Shocking. I'm a Professor X. I'm sure that was a self-appointed title. I think so. Do you know what? <laughs> Lady, Lady Gaga's husband is has not been knighted. Mm. <laughs> She's apparently going to be in the new um, Joker film, isn't she? Oh, it's Harley Quinn? Yeah. Well, do you know what? I, I, I've i never talked to her. I just thought, I, I spent years thinking, mm. well, well done for your Madonna impersonation yeah. uh, career. Why is everyone getting so excited about it? But <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll get back to why you're <laughs> laughing at me. I was just going to say they're going to miss a trick and if they don't call it Joker face. <laughs> <laughs> Bazing! Fantastic. You'll hear that uh, joke everywhere, by the way, but uh, we came up with it yeah. first. I say we. It's right into your coattails. But A Star is Born, I thought, my God, she's good. Mm. And some of the things I've seen, I haven't seen a House of Gucci. I'm not sure I could get past the accents. But I, I think she's a bit seriously talented artist. Yeah, yeah. As, as more, more as an actress than, than anything. So, yeah, that'll be interesting. I'm, do you know what? My, my, my fascination with all things... DC and Marvel mm. is just kind of circling the drain, really. <laughs> Do you not feel it's almost like a bit like you're you're fourteen well, it's been again? Like fourteen years, hasn't it? <laughs> Whatever, nearly oh. fifteen years of superhero films. Yeah, but do you remember when you were a kid and you were absolutely obsessed about yeah. comics and Batman? Was but there weren't out. any superhero films. No, but you started get you got into comics instead. Mm. But at the same time, you sort of get to fourteen, fifteen, you start discovering novels yeah. and literature, and so yeah. you, you kind of grow up a little bit. <laughs> This, I don't right, raise the ire of the graphic novel crowd, you know. But do, do you know what I mean? Mm. It's like the, I know the, the fun, they're expensive. Yeah, but they're I, all kind of kids' films. Arguably, without things like The Dark Knight, Killing Joke, you know, these graphic novels, it wouldn't have led to the films mm. like the, the Keaton films, you know, the Tim Burton films. And the, oh no, no, no! I, I think they're. they're no, I know. I know they're all very important, mm. and uh, it's the graphic novels and stuff like that. It's just I, I can. I can appreciate their importance and their, their quality without uh, being too much into them. But it's, it's the films. It's this constant, this is the only film that's getting made these days. And it's like, well, you know, it, they are like, you know, for kids. Yeah. <laughs> but getting back to the prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> why not? Why not? No, um, what you were saying there about, you know, ITC show. I think ITC, obviously, the, the hour-long stuff where you've 26 episodes, whatever. Mm. I mean, that's that's pretty pretty standard around that time and after The Prisoner, but I don't think there was anything of of that length. Uh, 17 episodes is just... Well, 17 episodes is it's unique. Yeah. 
But to to even get a seven episode thing was like, not a, not an hour long. I mean, we have exactly. miniseries today, yeah, which would do that absolutely. And look at Netflix's output. You know, there's a lot of things that hour long, eight episodes. Yeah, you know, run for about an hour. And also, you notice when you see the running times, you see sort of fifty eight minutes of episode yeah, because two because they don't have to be it, yeah, edited you don't now, have do to they? have that. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because that was a real discipline, a writer's discipline mm. that had to be. There was no yes. Yeah. It's 59 minutes. Yeah, well, we can, no, no, no. It's supposed to be 58. We, need, we yeah. need to lose a minute. Well, you can see, I mean, look at things like the original Star Trek and, and even The Prisoner. They all came in around 51, 52 minutes. Yeah. So you'd have about seven, eight minutes ad breaks, depending on where they were shown. But also you'd have to, you'd have to write towards those ad breaks. It yes, have exactly. To, act sure. structure, wouldn't you? Yeah, the act structure was determined by the ad breaks. And in America, of course, they'd have... Do you remember that we'd have... I think an hour would have an ad break, wouldn't mm. there be? Or sometimes... We'd have one early and then one at the 20-minute mark mm. and one at the 50-minute mark. So you'd have a big block in the middle. And then slowly, I think Channel 4, were the, they started to replicate the American one, which they have the sort of the pre-titles, then the adverts, then the titles. Yeah. Then the, so it's like five ad breaks in an hour. Mm. So the writer would have to sort of... Work around that. <laughs> yeah, that's, this, this is, you can't but, just have... You can't, mean, it couldn't just finish in the middle of a conversation. No, and Amer- the American system has always shocked me. The first time I went to America, you'd have the cold open. And then there'd be an ad break. Have, have you driven the new 4x4 by Jeep? It's like, what? I don't remember this being part of Star Trek The Next Generation. And then you'd have the titles and, you know, you'd have the first ad. And then it, it would just, there'd be no place, you know, back shortly. Yeah. But, I mean, Britain, we, you could see it start to deteriorate. And these hour-long shows dropping down to about 42 minutes. Mm. So they lose about 10 minutes of storytelling to have more um, commercials, wouldn't you? Yes. You know, it's just, I mean, there's a certain provider, I won't mention the name, who you pay a premium to watch on a monthly basis and most of their content has ad breaks. So what are you paying for? Um, well, you have to tell me which one that is. Uh, it's Mr. Murdoch's out. Empire. Oh, dear. But you, when you're paying, you know, some people pay nearly £100 a month for that, but you're actually watching these channels that are, you know, that you, that come with it, which have ad breaks. Yes. So no, you're no paying for the ad breaks. It's, it's, I've always surprised me. That's one reason I've never never really subscribed to, to that service, because I think it's a bit of a bit of a swizz. <laughs> Well, yes, the, the, the whole point of paying for stuff is that you don't get ad breaks. Yeah, so commercial television. You watch the commercials, which pays for the content. Yeah. And the BBC, you pay the licence fee. For, it's I mean, been that way. For, I mean, there, there are myriad reasons for, for paying the licence fee. Mm. Get on my little um, my little box here and yeah. uh, start sort of banging the drum for the BBC. But uh, largely it's so I don't have to listen to bleeding adverts. Yeah. I can actually watch a, a film straight through. I can't I, – I struggle to watch films yeah. with adverts. I just find it's like somebody sort of walking in, going to the cinema, and then the guy in front of me st- stands up and starts asking me how my parents are. It's like, oh, no, 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 the film's on. <laughs> yeah. Don't oh, just sit down, will you? It's just, and it, it's just because that's not the filmmaker didn't design the film to have ad breaks in the middle yeah. of it. It's, it's you're ruining that the the director's flow. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. They, that's not what they wanted. So it's yeah, I'm, I'm happy to keep paying a license fee for that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the strange world of Gurney Slade. Yes. Now, listen, this is something that I've not really seen mentioned in, in, in many uh, of the Prisoner books that I've been reading over the last 25, 30 years. You've, you were the one who put me onto this. Dave Barry mentioned it, and you already had it. 
I think this is there's a huge debt. Yes, I, I think without this, it may it, the influence is so immense mm. and it's so forgotten. Mm. And I think this is something that possibly this this podcast. Uh, hopefully should do, go somewhere to remedy this. Well, it's available on DVD. It is. From the network store. And also as Blu-ray as mm. well. Um, and it also has this, The Small World of Sammy Lee, which is another one that Anthony Newley made. Of course, it's, it's hard to kind of picture now, but Anthony Newley was a huge mm. star, wasn't he, back in the 60s? I mean, he, he wrote a- the music for, with Leslie Precursi, he wrote the music for like, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, you know. and Goldfinger. Gold, yes, he did. Yes. I, I, I got a, I got a, <laughs> some, what is it, Clandidno Victorian Extravaganza yeah. or something? It was some guy sort of giving out prizes yeah. for, and uh, who wrote, yeah. who wrote the theme for uh, for Goldfinger? And some girlfriend I was going out with at the time. I said, like, "Go there, Tom John Barry." Yeah, and it was, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> who's Anthony Newley? He made me look right stupid then. <laughs> So, yeah, he was, so I was he going was out with a, Liz Fraser. He was a huge star. Colossal. And in the musicals, in films, and he was a, a, a pop, proto-pop star yeah. as well, wasn't he? So he well, was, he was, he was a, a creative polymath, wasn't he? In, uh, to use the, I think is the right word. I'd say so. He was a jack of all trades. Married to Joan Collins as well. So he was yes. a good-looking lad too. So he, had, he was like if Don Black was looked like Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, was, but imagine, 1960 this came out. Mm. Gurney Slade, black and white, black and white, on ITV, and it's you know being allowed to do that. There's parallels with Magoo and going to Lou Grade and saying, "This is my idea. This is what I want to do." So Newley was allowed to do this. Yes. Imagine pitching the opening scene. If you haven't seen it, check it out because it's it's amazing for the time. Yeah. I've, I've, I was like just sat watching this, going, "Wow." It's it's yeah. it's actually some of it is breathtaking because you see not only the parallels with the prisoner and something we put up on the Twitter page recently where he's there's a scene where he's walking on the grass by the grass and it says please please keep on the grass exactly which like, is a direct reference yeah. I, I think that I think when we I've been having a quick listen to some of our early podcasts mm. just to see how how. How totally inept I sounded. And we were talking about that. And yeah. We were talking about how it's just a discombobulating yes. world. Actually, no, it's a direct rip-off. A, a proper. <laughs> t- there's no rip-off. I think it was a, 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 a sly, nod, isn't it? a sly a acknowledgement. Yeah. yeah. Of Because uh, it's, it's not worded the same way, is it? No, no. But at the same time, I've been trying to find out whether they were pals, mm. whether Newley and McGowan were big drinking buddies. Or well, they, were, they would have been in the same social circles, I would expect. They would have, the yeah, they would have been peers. They tended yeah. to all go to. I mean, I think apparently it was, it was the White Elephant Club in Curzon Street. Yeah, that was where everyone. I was. think. I think there are there was some speculation that Newley's kind of um, morality was a little skewed. There was <laughs> a, his. There was a book came out written by his son a few years ago. Uh, his son with Joan Collins. Yeah. Who, who claimed he liked the younger, uh, oh, ladies. Oh. But Joan Collins quickly dismissed this and basically said, "No, he he liked like." No. Late teenagers, but it was kind of. Is that any way to speak about your dad? Exactly, it was that kind of thing. So I don't know how much credence you put onto that, and Ooh. of course he'd already died, he'd already passed away by this point. So it's it's un- I think it was a little bit unfair to kind of tarnish him. But but if if he did like the the booze, the sauce, and uh, <laughs> liked a bit of the uh, extramarital stuff, I think probably <laughs> he probably wouldn't have got on with um, McGowan in that sense. No. No, 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 no. I think no, McGowan, McGowan had a, quite a high well, I'll have yardstick of that. Yeah. Um, for the company he kept. Yeah. But, I mean, he was, he was 
yeah, you say he was a sort of a, a creative polymath, but most of the stuff he was doing was just it was just high entertainment mm. of immense quality. He was a wonderful sort of lyricist and musician, but he was ne- he was never known for making this kind of uh, slightly surrealist um, art. Mm. He was this this was Gurney Slade was something completely new. Mm. Uh, well, look, I mean, look at the first episode. First episode is a standard British sitcom, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the the, uh, the yeah. front room, <laughs> and it's very of its time. The mother-in-law sat there. Everyone and, sounds like that, Danny yeah, Dad. Yeah. Well, I'm just Mr. Sonson, moved in <laughs> next door. And, you know, like the mother's doing the ironing and all that kind of stuff. And he sat in a chair, and there's just this really banal conversation going on, isn't there, about... About having you de- well, he can't, you know, stop at nagging him, and you know, my lad can't do his work until he's had his dinner, and he needs a good dinner. It's a bit, it's a well, you, I'd imagine you was exactly the same. It reminds me very much of Billy Liar. Yes, yeah, which was, was made around the same exactly time, the same time with the same because Anthony Neely's wearing the same sort of suit mm. as Billy Fisher, mm. and he, um, and obviously Billy Fisher's going off into his own head. Yeah. Where he's, a, he, uh, he's a dictator of his own country yes. and all that sort of yes. stuff. Whereas this is in the same way, so that, except he's it's, it's a sort of variation on that, but it's that same milieu. Yeah, do you know what I mean? But the, it's a lovely moment because he's the, you know he misses a line, mm. so all well, the actors are kind of like trying to prompt him. And even like going, it's the bit of the eggs. Yeah, and, and the, guy's, the one guy's trying to ad lib, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you you're going out because yeah. he, he picks his coat up, doesn't he? You're going out to see the roses. Yeah. It's like a stage play, isn't it? Where someone's forgotten their lines. Yeah. And the rest of the cast are trying to. And then there's this wonderful moment where the camera just kind of pulls back, and you see the artifice. And yeah, you, you see, see the floor stage. manager, yeah. and I think the floor manager's Jeffrey Palmer. Mm. Um, but you see, you see the actual set, yeah. and you see the actors on the set. And he resigns from that performance. He resigns from that show. He's had enough. Yes. Gets his coat and he's off. But like the prisoner, he can't. Yes. He's and trapped within it. He's trapped within the show. He's trapped within his own celebrity as well. Yeah. But it allows, I mean, he goes, he meets talking dogs. You know, Una Stubbs is a, is a picture on a, on a billboard that comes to life and talks to him and dances. You know, like, it's like, it's, it's surrealism. Yes. But it's... You know, it, he's pushing the boundaries of television because he's showing you what you can do with it. It's a very sort of sixties thing, that sort of absurdism. Mm. Um, what was there? There was a film, brilliantly uh, again. Dave Barry said, "Have you seen this? It's a film called One Way Pendulum mm. with all sorts." And again, I think that's about a similar time. Peter mm. Yates, who did Bullet, it's one of his first films, and Jonathan Miller is playing this guy who keeps stealing speaker weight machines. <laughs> and, and then putting them into his, uh, and you don't know what the hell's going on until you finally realise he's put them into his room, mm. taps them with one of those tuning sticks, and then he's actually <laughs> he's getting them all to speak at the same time, so he he can record them as a choir. Yeah. It's just that kind of lunacy. Yeah. And of course, I, I instantly you think of Richard Lester yeah. and his brand brand of, of, brand of absurdist comedy. <laughs> which I mean, the, the, the can thing I just can I just stop? I was listening to the Smosh Pod. Uh, yes. Have you, have you listened yeah. to yeah. John Rain's uh, podcast? It was brilliant, very entertaining. And they were talking about Superman 3. <laughs> but I was cooking last night and I was just in hysterics, just <laughs> pointing out some of the stuff that happens. Like the, the, the <laughs> But yeah, it's, <laughs> but as kids, you just go with it. Yes. And as adults, you're like, why is that happening? Why is that girl lost her dress when Superman's blowing? <laughs> it's, it's like Dick Lester, bless him. I mean, you've got a story about Dick Lester, haven't you? I d- well, uh, I, feel, I feel like we're those two old men in the, the Mary Whitehouse experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a story. I've got a story. Yes. Yeah, you, didn't you ha- uh, hear from Dick Lester? I did. It was 
well, I'd just started university and I, I'd written my first script mm. and it was just a standard, it was a sort of cop drama in the 70s and uh, he was chasing, you know, the standard stuff. Yeah. And Tarantino had just blown up, yeah. you know, Reservoir Dogs was out and I thought, hey, do you know what, this would be great. I'm going to put the middle at the beginning <laughs> and do all that. And then there's a scene, I think, where they talk about a uh, man in a suitcase mm. for about five pages, that sort of thing. But I sent it to Richard Lester because I thought I'd, I'd just seen Juggernaut. And mm. if you haven't seen Juggernaut, it's staggering. Is that Richard Harris film? Richard Harris, yes. Yeah. Fallon's the champion. But he, um, uh, it's got everyone in it. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. everyone's in it. But it's basically a disaster movie. Yeah. Isn't that a British disaster movie? Yeah, a British disaster movie. (laughs) This is kind of strangely oxymoronic sort of thing. (laughs) And it's basically what would happen if... Weirdly, the Poseidon Adventure was directed by a Brit, Mm. uh, Ronald Neem. And this was a British uh, disaster movie uh, made by an American. (laughs) And it's basically... The the ship is an absolute... It's basically like a Butlin's uh, holiday camp on an aircraft carrier yeah. from 1970. Everything is just not, it's not working. It's a real sort yeah. of state of the nation sort of parody. But, very, you know, very, but at the same time, very thrilling. Yeah. Some, it's a, it's a great action thing. I thought, well, he, he can do action. Yeah. And he was only 60 or something back then. I thought, That's, I'd, be good to, I'd love to see a Richard Lester revival. Yeah. So I sent it down to him. Two days later, wow! I was eating, I was eating some cereal and my mum just popped the phone and gone. She popped her head around and thought, Rich, it's Richard Lester. And I'm like, and he, like, he chatted with me for an hour. Wow. And he was saying, you know, very, very kindly. Mm. I mean, I'm, my, I can't, my, I'm, my stomach turns thinking about how sort of this genius having to read through all my awful scripts. But um, he, um, he basically said, what, I think what you need to, there's a couple of scenes here. I mean, some of this needs to, I mean, he's so constructive. And he says, but, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm retired now. Mm. Because of course that terrible accident with um, Kinnear, uh, Return of the Musketeers, which should never have been made anyway, no. a dreadful film. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was just like, oh my god, I just chatted to Richard Lester. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. So what? Do, what was the takeaway from that? I, well, I, I, I kept rewriting that for about the best part of six years. Yeah. I got it. I got it. I nearly got it in at Miramax. Hmm. Nearly, nearly, nearly. Yeah. But uh, eventually, you start to think, well, if people. It can only be rejected so many times before you start to think it's just maybe not very good. So, well, I think I think there's lots of scripts that have been banded around for years in Hollywood, haven't they? Yeah. Eventually, they find their their home. I think I was reading about Stranger Things was something that kept getting rejected numerous times, I, and I'm sure there's plenty of other you know examples of this. Oh, there's loads of stories like that. Like Red give... Dwarf was was one of these things as well. Like just everyone was saying no, science fiction and comedy just doesn't work. So, mm. You know, go away. You know, but I th- a lot of people just stop after the first rejection, don't they? Yes. Well, there was that letter from uh, the head of comedy about Faulty Towers. Mm. What on earth is this? This is dreadful stereotypes. Mm. This isn't. This is going to work at all. Slide. Yeah. It's like it's like, <laughs> it's like Columbia. Do we want to make ET? Ah, no, we're making Starman. Yeah. Oh, that guy from Decca. Oh, uh, guitar bands are on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> it's trad jazz now. Yes. And It's Trad Dad was a Richard Lester film. How yes. about that for a scene? There you go. Circularity. <laughs> Going back to Gurney Slade, that tone. Mm-hmm. I watched How I Won the War last night. Mm. And it's that same absurdist. Yes. Weird, weird, in a way, what's, what they seem to have in common is for comedies, they're not, really not very funny. 
I, in, I, not I, in a laugh at you kind of yeah. the, the kind of comedy you appreciate I watched react to. How I Won the War because John Lennon was in it yeah which I mean, is still amazing to see yeah I, just, and I think the only takeaway from that is that he wrote Strawberry Fields Forever mm. uh, while he was filming that and, uh, but yeah it's it's Michael Crawford isn't it it's it's not the best no film I Something about Michael Crawford in the in the sixties. What was that film that D- Dick Lester did? Was it like the running, jumping, standing still, still film? film? Yeah. yeah, for the goons. Yes, yes. I mean, that was quite ahead of its time, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was about fifty-eight. Wasn't Graham Stark in that? Yes, well, he was Peter Sellers' sort of best friend, really. Ah, and he turns up in Superman three. <laughs> oh, who is he in Superman three? <laughs> like just a little cameo. Oh, does he? He turns up in the Pink Panther films, doesn't he? He's yeah. He's in every Pink Panther yeah. film or something. He's, he's the one. Is that your dog? Yeah. <laughs> does your dog bite? That is not my dog. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah. Well, I've got well, it's a Superman three story. Mm. You know, he's pushing over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yes. And the guys with the models. The guy uh, with the white hair and a moustache. Yeah. Who doesn't say anything because he's actually incredibly Scottish. Yeah. He's not Italian. Yeah. He's George Chisholm, yeah. and he used to play with the goons. Ah. Uh, he's a trumpet player or a trombone player. Mm. And he used to play with my dad. Oh. And he came to our, my dad put on a concert in our farm. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why. And he played and stayed with us. And then we went to see Superman 3. Mum was there going, you know, remember George? <laughs> Do you remember George? He stayed with us at the time. It's like, oh, my gosh. So like your head melted. Oh, no, I was just telling everyone in school, go and see Superman 3. My dad's best friend is in it. <laughs> yeah, Gurney Slade. It's not just that element of where he walks off and starts to explore the, the kind of confines and uh, possibilities of television. There's lots of little kind of prisoner nods. I mean, there's a picture I posted on the Twitter page of um, Anthony Newley standing next to a plinth with a bust on, yeah. similar to the ones in The Prisoner. There's a scene on a runway. Uh, it's, it's, there's lots of visual steals or homages. I'm not entirely I, sure, I, but I think, McGowan think... definitely... Saw that because there is a quote that he discussed Kearney Slade with mm. with Lou Grade, so he must have been a big fan. Yes, but bearing but, in mind he would have only probably seen it once. Yeah, but I think it would have. It's not so much he's right. I'm gonna. This is changing the face of television. Mm. It's more a case of I get where he's coming from, and I, he, I can he, do something like he, this. He this is this is a huge star who wants to not be a star anymore, mm. and he's made a TV show about it, and that's kind of where I am at right now. And it would have been, maybe if he'd have forgotten about it because it's 1960 to 60, that's a long time. That is six years before they started production on The Prisoner. But while he was starting to get maybe a bit cheesed off of being John Drake and mm. wanting to do something else, that sort of, that, oh, I, I've, I remember something about this before, that, that's that Gurney Slade thing. Which so gi- it's the, it owes a debt. And it gives weight to this whole Danger Man, the new, you know, another series of Danger Man, that mm. it's not Drake, that this is a separate entity. Mm. This is Magoo exploring the confines of television, but feeding in all these elements that he's he's been playing with in his head. Yeah, you know, morality, um, existence, sense of self, individuality, society as uh, general, and then throwing in all the you know the Plato, the Freud, maybe some Kant's ethics, yes, politics, bureaucracy, Poli- exactly everything. It's it's his worldview. Yeah, it's like a big mixing pot. Yeah, and and I think. I think my takeaway from watching The Prisoner this time is now we've had this opportunity to go back almost to how we used to watch television. Now we just binge. Yes. And I think we miss the subtleties. You know, when we, when we have an episode a week, and I know some streaming services do this, but we get the chance to watch something twice or three times or discuss it in the interim. Yes. And, and that gives more appreciation to 
the show. And, and you, I remember sit, watching uh, Doctor Who when that came back with um, Christopher Eccleston. And it was the penultimate episode. I remember that week feeling like eternity because I just <laughs> wanted to see how that would be resolved, you know. And you've got that appreciation and you've got that anticipation. Yes. And I think that's been the same with this. It's that we've been able to watch an episode, discuss it, draw from it and have these conversations and draw, you know, uh, lots of comparisons and allusions to things. And I think that's made it a more richer experience as a positive. But as a slight negative, I kind of I think it's lifted like the end of The Wizard of Oz. It's lifted the curtain a little bit to see little old Frank Morgan <laughs> stood there going, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it's, yeah, forget the mythos, because the mythos has grown up, hasn't it, around. And I, I talked about this earlier on. It's like uh, Jack the Ripper. You mm. know, Jack the Ripper was probably, I think, one of the theories is he was a German sailor. The ship appears in London at the time of each of the killings. He can murder, go back to his ship, and he's away. And yeah, there's a, 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 a theory about a German sailor who was, who was actually killed, who was actually ex- executed for a similar murder ah. after the fact. But um, you know, but Hollywood and and theories and people writing hundreds and hundreds of books on the subject create more texture and like fiction around it. You know, yes. and now we've got the the foggy London, the man in the top hat, the silhouette, and the, <laughs> the you know, and of course it's probably something banal like this German sailor just like walking into these these prostitute districts, yes, and then just you know satiating this bloodlust, getting back on a ship and sailing off the next morning, and no one's any the wiser. It's I think it's like that with the prisoner. I think. You know, there's a solid idea that Magoon wants to explore. He's got the right people around him. He's got Champagne, who's, I mean, yes. you look at contextually from what he was doing. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, he's up there with people like Ken Adam mm. in terms of his design concept. And you've seen Champagne's designs. They're amazing. Extraordinary. And 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 I hadn't realised just how innovative his kind of, his reusing of them mm. was over the series. It's not a case, I mean, it's not just the incredibly iconic you know, memorable over many decades yeah. look to the stuff. But this, the detail of kind of, well, you realise that's the, the gym. Well, that's actually the same room. as the, the, it's number two's room. Eight times yeah. and to just move this about. To do that yeah. would, have, would have taken a certain type of And it's a dome genius. shape, isn't it? Yeah. Which could actually be a globe shape. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's the way it's lit. It's like Star Trek with, you know, the original series. They just basically whacked some lights onto a grey wall. It's a different <laughs> set. But, you know, it's it's cost-efficient, but it's genius. Yeah? You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's surrounded himself. There's the stories of Champagne going in at, like, 6 o'clock in the morning to start work. And McGowan was early, apparently, but Champagne had already been there for half an hour when he turns up. Yeah. You know, the stories of McGowan being there on Christmas Day, I think, once. Um, That's, yes. You know, they, they, it's so invested and having the right people around him who are also invested. Yeah. But then having these kind of little angels and devils on your shoulder, like Mark Stein. Say no, 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 no. We've got to keep it almost like uh, George Martin and the Beatles. Yeah, you know, no, 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 no. You can do this, but steady on, steady, steady on. on, chaps. You've got to, you know, we've got to sell this. Don't forget. We've, I, I, you know, I think, I think it, it benefited. Mm. It benefited from having that. It's, there's always when you see a director just kind of get so successful mm. that they suddenly, usually, usually their fourth uh, film after th- a run of three yeah. hits. Will become will be awful because yeah. by that point they'll have stopped listening yeah. to anyone. Well, you I, see I, that with George Lucas. I think by the time George Lucas, I mean, he only directed episode four, didn't he? Initially, yes. 
Then you had uh, was it Irving Kirshner and uh, Richard Marquand. A Welshman. A Welshman, yes. Yes. But then Lucas goes back and directs episodes one, two and three. But it's almost like no one's standing up to him saying, do you think kids really want to know about trade disputes and blockades <laughs> and politics and all this kind of stuff? Because it's very wordy. Phantom Menace, isn't it? it? Yes. And it talks about politics and, you know, you've got these Nemoidians going, oh, but the princess must, you know, oh, the Queen Amidala must, you know, she must sway to this. And you've got these scenes in, in court, in um, yeah. government And this, this is a guy who studied, you know, the... The, the art of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, but all the, his, his great hero, Joseph Campbell, mm. the hero with uh, a thousand faces, and, uh, which is all basically about sort of action leading to action. Yeah, and uh, yeah. all the, the, that's the brilliance of, of the Star Wars screenplays, that it's kind of dun 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 to this. Because you can it's fit... juggernaut. You, with the monomyth, you can fit all the elements of the monomyth to Star Wars. Yeah, but you not know? to Phantom Menace. No. Because it just, it's, just, it's just so talky. Yeah. And, then it, and, and it, it makes the stuff like... And even the pod race... Takes forever. Yeah, I've like, got three laps. But it's like this. your Ben Hur moment, isn't it? It's the chariot race in Ben Hur, the action. Kind yeah, of but it's just it's kind of, you got sort of fifteen minutes of that yeah. preceded by sort of half an hour of just talking yeah. about metachlorians and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just talking into a lady shave razor. It was the props, wasn't it? Yeah. No, so, so I, th- I think it's it was a good thing to have Mark Stein there. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that it sort of came off the rails. Well, if only George Lucas had a George Mark Stein. Well, yes. You know, you the think? Star Wars prequels may have been a little different. It would have been his Gary Kurtz. Yes, yes, <laughs> with his fantastic beard. Yeah. A little bit like that guy in the hospital in The Prisoner, isn't he? <laughs> Moustacheless beard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's your sticker. <laughs> I think The Prisoner does owe a huge debt to Gurney Slade. Yeah. And I think McGowan was very lucky in, in terms of, like I say, the people he surrounded himself with, but also having these writers who kind mm. of saw, sometimes saw what was going on and thought, ah, okay, and uh, the, the quote is a particular bent of mind. Yes, right. As I've stated before, these weren't Danger Man writers. These were, you know, up and coming. As you say, one of them wrote for Punch. Yes. You know, they maybe kind of latched onto this and got in with that kind of creative flow and thought, oh, I see what he's doing here. Yeah. And then, of course, then is it Feely with Checkmates and he's basically, yes, you know, yeah. had this idea and that's become a part of the prisoner mythos yet not McGowan's idea, but just works perfectly within the context and construction of The Prisoner. Mm. And then, of course, you've got all the later episodes where they kind of drift off and they're asking everybody for ideas. Yeah. So just kind of fill it in. That's only really for like four... I know, it's only for the latter episodes, isn't but it? But in a way, it gives the, the, those four episodes a separate personality. Though, yes, yes, it does. Which, uh, which is interesting. Because it's like a, Arguably a little diluted, though, a little bit more... I th- I think so. I think there's certainly it starts off well, mm. and, and but then of course it just pulls everything back. Yeah, but there, I think that you could see he was desperately trying to get to. Um, okay, I'm drawing it back to Star Wars again, but you could see when he made the Phantom Menace. Really, he was only trying to make the third one. Yeah, but he realised he had to make two whole films. Yeah, he needed a new trilogy to get to that. Well, it's like the Hobbit, wasn't it? A Hobbit could have been one film. Oh, but it should have been one film. Yeah. It should have been a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. film. So let's make three films <laughs> and all the extended version and draw and just pinch stuff from all the other books. I think this is known as the Deathly Hallows principle, <laughs> wherein they realised they could get one more yeah. out and then suddenly Mocking... Uh, yeah, Mocking Jay. Uh, 
Hunger Games, mm. same thing. The last one's in two parts. Mm. Both of them makes 400 million you know, each. Mm. It's like, wow, what a shock. A Hobbit film, you say? <laughs> how about, now hear me out, how about Hobbit films? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we did three last time. Let's do three this time. Yeah, yeah, but this book is about is a pamphlet, a pamphlet compared yeah. to the, the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Well, how are we going to get, well, we're going to have lots of singing folk songs. Yes. Oh, God. But that's, see, that's Hollywood I, mentality for you, though, I isn't it? I would love, you know, I would love to see yeah. The single Hobbit movie, which you could quite easily. Oh yeah, I'm sure somebody's done that. Yeah, I mean somebody edited the Phantom Menace, didn't they? <laughs> Into what? It's I think it was Tougher Grace, actually. You know, really? Yeah, the actor from uh, that '70s show, and he was yeah, in yeah, he was... Spider-Man Three, wasn't he? But um, and Love, Death, and Robots, I think he was in as well. But I think he did his own edit where he's, he's kind of cut <laughs> most of the Jar Jar stuff out. His <laughs> <laughs> cameo, yeah. I mean, they missed a trick there. Mate, they should have made Jar Jar a Sith Lord. That would have been fantastic, you know, the most... Yeah. But anyway, anyway. But yeah, um, and as we've discussed before, you know, it's that question, of who is the protagonist in episode four? Well, it's Luke Skywalker, isn't it? Mm. Who is the protagonist in Phantom Menace? It's, there's a question for people to dwell on. Yeah. Say, oh, well, it's Obi-Wan. Yeah, but he's only in an hour of the film. Okay, well, then it's Qui-Gon. Well, yeah, arguably it could be Qui-Gon. Ah, but it could be... But, he's, he doesn't, but it doesn't, he doesn't have a specific... He doesn't... None, no, none of them learn anything or change, yeah. even, even, even the kid. But look at... I mean, we are talking about Joseph Campbell. Mm. You know, the monomyth, uh, you can apply the monomyth to hundreds and hundreds of films. They start with a, a young child, usually an orphan, which is the common yeah, trope, being raised by step-parents or auntie and uncle. In a, in a situation that not particularly happy with, you know. So you've got this kid living with his uncle and aunt, and he's really miserable. Well, that's Harry Potter, mm. you know. And it's also it's Luke Skywalker. As well. Yeah, but it's hundreds of characters, isn't it? Yeah, it's hundreds of characters, you know. And then there's like a, a call to action. There's the um, which he resists. Resists the avuncular figure, mm. Uncle Ben or Gandalf or Obi Wan. And and there's I don't really see the hero's journey in. Phantom Menace. No, and I, I think it's largely because he really didn't especially want to make it. He wanted to mm. make the, the bit where he turns into Darth Vader. Where yeah. he realized he, Which is at the last <laughs> ten minutes of episode three. But that really weird line reading by Hayden Christensen goes, mm. you may try. Don't try that again. <laughs> but it's a Frankenstein rip-off at the end, isn't it? As he kind of lumbers out of that thing and goes, no! Oh, they t- yes. Didn't they put that onto Return of the Jedi? Yes. And they did yes. another bit of tinkering where they made Darth Vader go, no. At least that's something McGowan never did. No. And I think, even what, do you know what Spielberg recently was talking about, E.T.? Because mm. uh, he tinkered. He tinkered for the 20th. <clears throat> yeah. He was putting uh, talk, walkie, walk, walkie-talkies. Instead of guns. Instead of guns, yeah. he took out terror. And then there's some CGI E.T. as well. Yeah. And he said he, he deeply regrets it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Coppola probably started this, didn't he? With um, the Redux apocalypse now, and uh, uh, it's going yeah. back to retinkering, but it's just you know, it, it's like a painting. Picasso never saw. Hang on, Guernica. Hang on, that, I've, that horse has always bothered me. No. I'm going to paint that out. You've got to eventually stop and say that's it. Yeah, but film and television is a medium that you can do that. I mean, Disney did that recently with the Mandalorian. Is the there was a, a in I think it was Mandalorian season two. There was an episode where one of the crew could be seen. <laughs> 
in shot. <laughs> the guy in jeans. And yeah. I think some some wag made their own action figure of crew guy Steve <laughs> or whatever. But Disney didn't realise this and went, oh, shit, we better get in there. And they basically digitally removed it. Oh, him. did they? Yeah. Oh, that's... It's like the stormtrooper knocking his head. You kind of look out for those little bits of. Yeah. Um... So, and they added the sound effect. For yeah, late, didn't yeah. they? For later, it's even better. But they shouldn't. But that, there's the argument there that this is art. Yeah, like you say with Guernica, you shouldn't go back and get Picasso because I'm just going to add a penny farthing on the end or something. But also, it's the uh, like a, Apocalypse Now is the film that Coppola made when mm. he was that age. Mm. What would he have been about? Sort of thirty nine. And when he went back to redo it, he was a different man. Yes, yes. He was an older man who'd gone through bankruptcy. <laughs> He'd become slightly more... In whatever way he was a different man, he was a different artist. Yeah. This is a guy who was making John Grisham's The Rainmaker, yeah. not Apocalypse Now. But that's the, that, at that point in time, that's the film he made, and it's like, stop. You, yeah. you, you put, a, put a ring around you. You can't... Don't change it, even if it annoys you. And, and it must annoy most directors, most... Artists of any kind to sort of go back and oh I can't believe I did that, well, but you did, and that's part of it. Well, look at the look at the Beatles. So in, you know, in the nineteen sixties, stereo was basically a if you were like an audiophile and could afford it, you could have you could buy stereo equipment. Well, quite refining sound. Yeah, as, as uh, George Harrison stated, and he goes, "What do I need another speaker for?" Yeah, kind of thing, you know, <laughs> I, I've got one speaker. I can hear the music. What, what's the benefit of having a second one? But you could argue that music is allowed to do that and film to a certain extent because we can go back and, you know, we, we've got a film that came out, let's say Casablanca comes out and, of course, that's black and white. It's got a mono soundtrack and it's in full, uh, Academy Ratio, isn't it? Yes. I was going to say four by three then, slap my wrist. But it was in uh, Academy Ratio, which at the time was the, the dominant yes. uh, aspect ratio, wasn't it? You know, that would have come out on video, on VHS, possibly Betamax as a, as a home rental, and then on DVD. And then when Blu-ray comes along, they'll think, hold on a minute, we've got much more data we can but Let's go back to the original masters and let's do these digital transfers. Mm. Have you seen um, Holiday Inn? Danny Kaye. I saw it on, uh, on last Christmas, actually, but yeah. what, had, what had been done to it? Nothing. And in terms of, well, they've gone to the original print yes. and, ups, and obviously downscaled it <laughs> to Blu-ray, because I don't think it's upscale, but it's not, it's downscale because film... The, the amount of information on analog film is incredible, and you just see the small part on on high definition. Yeah, there's something we asked we asked Rick Davy about for the prisoner. You know, was, is there any chance of that being a four? Uh, yeah, and it's just case? too. It reveals too much. Yes, yeah, too much. I think it was too much grain, and uh, it's 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 not feasible for a 4K release, unfortunately, of the prisoner. Yeah, but well, you know, it could have been another revisit. But you know, in years to come, I mean, look at the technology we've got now. We've got AI upscale. If you look at what Peter Jackson did on them, um, yeah. yeah, they will not grow old. They shall not grow old. And um, get back. And yeah, I mean, get back was shown on sixteen mil, yeah, not thirty five, which is sixteen millimeter, which is the cheaper stock. Yeah, and it was, was that was an extraordinary experience. So there is potential for the prisoner to come back in the future at four K or maybe sub four K, but as a higher quality than it is on Blu Ray. But it, it already is. I mean, I I, I think. I'd be happy for them to leave it, frankly. I okay, think what, what they've done on the Blu-ray, on the network Blu-ray, uh, yeah. is astonishing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there are colours existing in that that I haven't seen before. Mm. Quite quite extraordinary. And there is an argument to go back to music and to go back to, to film, to, to present them in the way 
that maybe the director would have experienced them on, you know, in shooting without yeah. this. Well, it's, it's, that's, I think there's a difference between sharpening up mm. and you know, presenting it in the best possible way. It's like if an artist wants a print done of their work, mm. takes a Polaroid of it and says, can you just kind of blow that up, please? Or maybe actually gets it done properly yeah, beautifully. Yeah, yeah. If you, it, yeah, any, any film you make, you want it to look as good. But it's a, there's a difference in that and changing it. Yeah. Do you know what? Actually, that scene really bothered me because I don't really like her performance. So I'm going to cut her out. Mm-hmm. Well, you've changed the film then, and that's you know that's. And this, I mean, arguably, I mean, we don't know this for certain, but I'm guessing there would have been moments within the 17 episodes of The Prisoner that McGowan would have gone if I had, you know, complete creative control over this, and I could go back and change things. I'm sure there would have been things he would have omitted. Mm. You know, I'm guessing that if he had the option yeah. in today's world, if he was around today that he would have gone with those seven episodes and it would have been a seven-episode limited series on Netflix, yeah. Disney Plus, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you can see the constraints of the time and the time period in The Prisoner. Yes, you know? but I would... Uh, true, but I would say probably far less than you, you see in a lot of shows from mm. that period. I think it's... Uh, it's no, it's, it's aged better. Mm. It hasn't dated. It's aged much better than, than most shows from that period, I think. Even stuff like there's no, there's no reference to to shillings, pounds, shillings, pence, or that. that mm, units. Well, the credit card system, which at the time the credit card system was only just coming in. Oh yeah, you know, so it was quite a a new piece of uh, technology is the wrong word, but a new a new way of. of yeah, there's only just kind of unavoidable um, things like you know the, the the helicopter with the padded landing mm. things. You know, that's sort of from the age. Yeah. But if it could if it could be avoided, it didn't have anything contemporary in it, mm. so it hasn't dated at all. But even I mean, even as I say, sort of uh, if you what's a man in the suitcase something or, or yeah. Baron, so I say, uh, well, uh, give us give us a tanner, I'll go and get a half a mile. Yeah. There's no um, there's nothing like that to make it, and it's obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. But th- that's one of the, the the traps that the prisoner never yes. really fell into yeah. at all. The anachronisms. So, yeah, there's no, there's just, I, I was amazed by that. I yeah. think it, it's gone through a process now where I think it's just starting to exist as a, as a, as a single piece of art, yeah. which, and there's nothing else you can say about that. Uh, the, 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 for all their myriad high qualities, you couldn't say that about the Avengers or mm. Department S or Man in a Suitcase or any of them, or even, even Monty Python, mm. something like that. You watch that now, some of it's, You've so got to Google the, some of the references, haven't you? Oh yeah, but that was always great. You know, most of most. I remember listening to one of their albums and asking my dad, I said, "Dad, who's Reginald Bosenkate? <laughs> who's Cliff Mitchellmore?" Yeah, my dad laughing, going, <laughs> "Have you heard that now?" Yeah, <laughs> Reginald Bosenkate. It was such. A, I thought they invented him. Yeah, but even Doctor Bonofsky. Yeah, all these all these oh, people. Henry Kissinger. <laughs> who's Henry Kissinger? <laughs> Where have you heard that name? Monty Python. <laughs> but I mean, the I mean, humour is a different mm. thing. Humour sort of can date <laughs> badly yeah. now, but even some of the way it's shot is is is, is, is so of its time. Mm. I'm not saying it's hard to watch. It's just become a, 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 either enjoyable or non-enjoyable part of it. The prisoner doesn't suffer from that at all. No, and I think what a lot of people have alluded to is is as I'm going to use Dave Barry's quote is the rapidity of cuts. Yes, you put that alongside a show made at the same time and the same year, and just watch like the average shot length. You know, and the prisoner is like bang, bang. Yeah, most it's most like of a shows modern. Just, yeah, they're just masters. 
It's usually a, a kind of following Roger Moore yeah. and luck, back and forth. Luckily, the prisoner is still of that period where we actually use tripods. Uh, <laughs> don't even get me started on uh, some of the some of this kind of like fake cinema verite style that a lot of directors. I remember watching an episode of Torchwood once. I had to turn it off because it was like just. I, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a funny dance move at the moment, Takai. Uh, it's like your eyes are kind of, you can't focus because it's just going, to, you know, it's, it's too much. Mm. But it's this, a lot of TV shows today have this, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing, but it just annoys the hell out of me. And I find certain things very difficult to watch. Yes. But the argument is there, it's to keep modern audiences engaged. And I'm saying, well, give modern audiences benefit of the doubt. They'll still watch it. Yeah. You know, I was watching Kenobi and it's like Ewan McGregor's looking like he's doing the river dance in some of the scenes. <laughs> and it's like, don't I don't think you need it. No. The it's... prisoner has a rapidity of cuts, doesn't have all this kind of, you know, twenty first century nonsense applied to it. No, it's it's a it's a it's a class act. Mm. Who's the two? Who's the two? I thought we were done with this. So oh I know I know I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> Somebody's got a little secret. Well, we like Easter eggs, don't we? We do. Everyone likes an Easter egg. Everyone likes a little bit of production. So we've got a lovely little Easter egg, but the, the, the actual recording of the Who's the Two was done in the doorway of the Green Dome at Port Marion. <laughs> but I thought I was there, I was visiting there in March, and I thought, Do you know what, it would be lovely. So I took my uh, recorder and just basically went up there and went, Who's the Two? <laughs> <laughs> Just to give it a little bit more validity. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I appreciated it. I know, but uh, no, no, maybe maybe other people appreciate it when if they listen back to an episode. Then that could be a little thing you could do every time you go to Port Merion. In tribute to us, to stand in the doorway of the Green, green Dome and say, "Who's the tool?" <laughs> Record it and send it to us, and we'll compare notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in summary, basically, I think looking back at this process, looking back at more of these production elements, I think. I think maybe it's dispelled the mythos a little bit for me in terms of the prisoner as, as, as this kind of holding it up there as this huge achievement, which it still is. It yeah. still undoubtedly is. But I think when you start like a magic trick, and this ironically goes back to the first episode where we talked about the mystery box in J.J. Abrams, is peeling away these kind of take opening these curtains and peeling away these layers to see what actually took place does dispel a little bit of mythos. Ooh, answer some of those questions, but also I think it's given me a deeper appreciation of the show. I would 100% agree with that, but um, I don't think, I think it seeing the all kind of swan's feet pedalling mm. uh, beneath the actual swan and realising, just kind of, go, like say, going, lifting up the curtain and seeing exactly how hard this was to mm. make and all the... The, the arguments and the, the creative tensions and, the, and the, like you say, the, the skills of the people involved, that actually intensified mm. my, my, my pleasure of it. it. It didn't diminish it at all. No, I, I don't, I diminish, I, I don't think I diminish, diminish is the wrong word. I, yeah, I think I, I've seen it in a different light, mm. but still with that appreciation. Probably appreciated it more, but from a different perspective. Yeah. Not I, just of age, because obviously watching the show in 10 years' time, I'll probably have a more appreciation of it from a different level. Yeah. You were identifying with number two <laughs> yeah. when we were 50. You know yeah. what? Why doesn't he just conform? <laughs> we have, Chris. We've joined the bowling club. We've <laughs> <laughs> You'd have had a much easier life. Yes. Game of chess. <laughs> I think, I, what, going back to it and doing the, 
the, the podcast and seeing it again. Mm. What's pleased me has been how it hasn't just not got worse or I can see the joints. Even now I can see the joints. Yeah. Even more now. See wig lines. And yeah, like yeah. It's just, it's, it's just seeing how much something that I've always loved mm. turns out, I, <laughs> turns out I was right. Yes. <laughs> it is amazing. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, got, it's got better and better and better, I think, mm. over the years. It's not been diminished. And I think it's, it's earned its place now as, as a, a, almost like a separate entity, something yeah. completely unique that, um, you know, oh, do you know, it's, it's the like, cobblers, wasn't it? There's a ball in it. Remember the, it's more than a ball, wasn't it? And he's got that car. Was it uh, Jeffrey Holland, did it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that uh, tweet, by the way. Or X, was X, it, X, it, X, X, it was amazing. I love that. Yeah. But, um, it, no, it has, it's, it's, it's survived. Mm. Even with episodes that don't quite work, you know, mm. some of the two and three score episodes, that hasn't diminished it at all. It's, 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 it, it works mm. and it, it's lasted. And I think it's one of those things that you just take your hat off now and just look at it. And I think there's a plea to anybody listening to this, if you're still with us, <laughs> if you're still with us, it's, it's, you know, if someone's asking, you know, oh, what are you watching on Netflix at the moment? Or, you know, what's, anything you recommend, recommend The Prisoner. Yes. Just let's, let's keep it going for another 50 years, if possible. Let's, let's have audiences in 50 years' time at the yeah. centenary. Because, the, yeah, yeah, these things, I mean, you, you think they're going to be around forever, but they, there aren't, there aren't, there are kids now that probably don't know, that obviously there are kids now that don't know who Blake Seven is. Who mm. don't know who I wouldn't put Blake Seven at the same. No, but do you know what I mean. Yeah, for, yeah but for for you particularly, yeah. and for me, a lot of our generation is like that. Was like no, that's seminal. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. do you mean you don't know who Blake Seven is? It's a bit like not knowing who uh, the, the the Kinks are. Yeah, but the lovely thing is, like especially with the Kinks, my daughter's just got into the Kinks. Mm. Is that you 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 discover it in you, and then yes. and then another generation picks it up. Yes. But that's how it should be. And I think, but the thing is, is you still have to have these conversations. You've still got to have that information out there for yeah. people to pick up on. And we're a lot of times with films, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, we're part of the legacy management of, yes, of the legacy prisoner. legacy management, yeah. <laughs> just, just recommend it to people. Show it to your kids. Show it to your younger siblings. Show it to your grandkids. Yeah, because there's something for everyone. Yeah. You know, sit th- give them some sweets and just say, <laughs> yeah, just make sure you watch, at least get the first two episodes. Show them Chimes a Big Ben as well. Get them invested. Yes. Make them some flapjacks. Yeah. And then they'll say, these are pancakes. So they can be doing their own hollow <laughs> podcasts yeah. in, in the year 2067. Exactly. Well, we, may, we may even be invited on as guests. if, yes, we're, if we're In spared. our Zimmer frames. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be dead by then, I think. <laughs> ten, what? what? Ten, ten years? What, 67? Oh, so y- y- yeah, we'll both be dead. Well, um, <laughs> we'll leave notes for any sort of uh, future. <laughs> I was born in 74. I'd, I'd so be like 92 or something. Oh, well, there's a somber note. To Sorry. Sort of drift away, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's a line in, um, I think it's Beatles for Sale. It says, I, think, I can't remember what the actual quote is, but it says, you know, in, in 50 years' time when children are setting... In a garden on Venus, and they ask, "Who were the Beatles?" That's right. And it was, it was for, it was. I think it was with the Beatles as well. It's not going to be this album they're talking about. Trust me. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's so disappointing, isn't it? I think some, somebody was talking on on Twitter about watching the whole uh, the, the was it Apollo Eleven mm. again. The way they touched that up, so it looked like it was happening yesterday. Yeah, extraordinary. 
And just seeing that kind of idealism, yeah. that American, very specifically American idealism yes. that was around, and which kind of just isn't there anymore, you know, certainly not to the same degree. But it was kind of about well, the, the hope. Look, we're going to go to the moon. What's next? Yeah. And then you've got Kubrick. You've got people living on the moon. You've got the yeah. like the Jetsons. Yeah. You've got all this. This is what, oh, two, by two thousand and one. We're going to be there'll be a foot and mouth outbreak. Yeah. Moon base alpha will be black. Oh no, that's uh, yeah. space ninety yeah. yeah. nine. By ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with sci-fi. You kind of you think we're, uh, it was twenty twenty two. This is soiling green. Yes. Yeah, we're in so soiling we, green. We should time. be eating people by now, but we're not even doing that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although they have announced those euthanasia machines, haven't they? There we are. That the Edward step in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, you know it's it's kind of that hope mm. is kind of it's it's that kind of deadening effect. Well, I don't think I don't never seen the prisoner as a show that celebrates hope. Oh no, I don't mean that. I'm just nothing yeah. to do with the prisoner. It was just a sort of uh, just the idea of like being in Venus in fifty years, mm. where people that they imagined we'd be in 50 years back yeah. in 67 we're actually you know, nudged maybe the, you know we've got better TV equipment that's about it you see I'm a big fan of, of the Swindon band XTC indeed and um, you know famous probably for their hits Making Plans for Nigel and uh, Sensible in Overtime but they've got a huge catalogue of, of fantastic songs I mean like you know up there with Ray Davis mm. and McCartney uh, people like Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. And I'd always loved XTC, but nobody else was really listening to them. So I'd say, they say, what bands are you into? Oh, I'm into the Smiths. Oh, I'm into Guns N' Roses. Uh, what are you into? XTC. Who? And I've always found that with The Prisoner. It's like The Prisoner as this, you know, I always felt when I was listening to XTC that this was a club. Yeah. You know, people like Mark Fisher, who, who does a podcast on XTC, would probably agree. It's like they're a musician's band. You know, yeah. you, you, it's this club that you appreciate more because it's not appreciated by the mainstream. And that's not being gatekeeperish or pretentious. That's like, why aren't people watching this and going, this is amazing. Yeah. You need to watch it. Yeah, the pleasure's not from sort of being in a sort of secret thing where nobody's hiding it from other people. It's yeah, it's not being hidden, you want is it? Everyone to. Because it's, you watch The Prisoner and you think, oh, this is amazing. Isn't this amazing? You mm. turn to that fictional person on your right and they're going, oh, it's daft this. What's that ball mean? Oh, well, it's a bit like, like I said in the, the very first lines of, of the podcast. Mm. Isn't it, Ace? You know, the circularity of it. We're going mm. we're referencing the first episode. It's how, I, how we met mm. was basically I was walking around with a prisoner oh, yes, badge yes, yes, yes. on my awful coat. Yeah. And everyone just thought it was a birthday. Although, a, a, although we almost formed a band, didn't we? Oh, the unhappy hippies. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, I think that was our second conversation. Yes, Mercifully, probably, there wasn't yeah. a third. <laughs> I should, I, yeah, didn't I design T-shirts I think for that? Did, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, the fact I couldn't sing or play any musical instruments. That's never stopped people before. No, I could have been the Sid Vicious of the unhappy yeah. hippies, the Bez. <laughs> now then, listeners. Um, we call upon you to help us out a little bit here because uh, Chris has done one and I've done one and I like both. Uh, I particularly like what Chris has done. I'll get to, to I'll go through mine quickly. Mm. And uh, this is it's it's not so much the, this is not the definitive no, this order. Is just this is just this is our interpretation of how best the <clears throat> order to watch it in. And the one controversial thing that I've done is I've split it into two seasons. 
And I, you know, as this, I think this is the best way to actually watch it mm. is to actually have, say, another say, two month break yeah. between watching them. So okay. you can sort of digest the first series. So I've obviously gone for, uh, to start, I've gone for a change of mind. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. So obviously, start with Arrival. The episode two, which is always a little bit uh, controversial, I've gone for Dance of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And of course, you, uh, you've got all these elements of him saying, I'm new here, mm-hmm. and him clearly not knowing what's going on and stuff like that. You've got to bear that in mind. Free for all, I put third. Yes. Yeah. And just like it works in, in, in real life, uh, in the real thing, I put the schizoid man next because mm-hmm. it, you, it works as a sort of a lighter episode mm-hmm. after the free for, free for all darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, checkmate next. It's still within that f- initial first shooting. Yeah. It's still got the same sort of, same slightly more primary colours going on. Yes. And he's still kind of not quite sure what's going on. Then I've got, in, in a way, to sort of, you think, well, I've, I've played, my, I played my strong hand first. Yeah. Uh, I need to end the se- series on a high. So I've got a little bit of, you know, those kind of, uh, you know how an album usually sort of ends with a really good track, yeah. but maybe tracks eight and nine on. That's yeah, where they stick yeah. the, uh, the, the filler. filler. Yeah. That's where I go, it's your funeral mm. and a change of mind. Next, though, I've put The Girl Who's Death. Okay. I've brought it forward into the first season. But because arguably, you can. it can be anywhere. Exactly. Death, it, it, it doesn't matter. But it sort of, it takes, it maybe it, Heightens its mm. uh, status away from one of the kind of the the, the desperation end of the of the second series because it works mm. incredibly well here, and then I've ended with the chimes of Big Ben because I was going to end with many happy returns. It needs to end on an escape. Yes, but chimes of Big Ben works uh, because McKern's in it. I was initially going to have him as a sort of a three part McKern mm. end with chimes of Big Ben once upon a time fallout, but in once upon a time he says. I know you. You've been here before. Mm. I'm back. So he's always to be. He needs to be taken away someplace. So yes. they're not concurrent. No, but if they basically end the same way. He escapes. He comes back. End of. So mm. the audience are thinking, "Well, it's the end of the season. He's going to escape." Yeah. But he doesn't break. And then we come back with living in harmony. So you start off completely discombobulated yes. the audience. So what the hell is no, this? Co- no, um, no titles. I thought this was going to be the prisoner. What's going mm. on here? Second, the general, followed by ABC. So you get those in the right order, mm. where Colin, Gordon. Colin Gordon's builds up and, to his breakdown. Yeah, builds yeah. <laughs> 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 up to, and uh, just drinks plenty of milk to deal with the ulcer he got mm. from uh, his defeat in the general. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. Next, okay, I bump that forward a little bit because for the next episode, uh, Hammer into Anvil, I think that really works. That's a strong episode. Mm. I didn't want the second series to be sort of too full of. Uh, the slightly weaker ones. But also, at the end of Hammer into Anvil, he's, he's, he's won. Mm. He's a winner then. So he's kind of, he's, he's, uh, he's emboldened. Yeah. To, and he's, he's kind of been out. He's been out of the village for Do Not Forsake Me. So now he's thinking, now I'm going to get out of here. Then you have many happy returns. And of course, by the end of that, he's broken again. Mm. He's back. He can't escape. Nightmare. Once upon a time, fallout. Okay. Interesting. Now, I, uh, I just want to, before you get into yours, I just want to pay tribute to this wonderful um, bit of the fact that you've actually set, set it out in months. <laughs> well, December that, to January. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've set it out on a timeline, but also from a kind of a narrative character arc yeah. as well. So I've, I've not done the same. I haven't split it into two. I've just kept it as a, as a sequence. Some of them are interchangeable. 
And I think you, you could argue you could just strip this down to seven episodes, seven, eight episodes. Yeah. Uh, maybe nine. But um, so I've started with uh, New to the Village. Yep. So where he's learning the world around him and he's learning the rules and, and pushing, you know, push the village is pushing back against him. Yeah. So what I've done for that is around about December, January or whatever year this takes place in. So I've started with Arrival, even though I was saying before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brackets, I, obviously. Yeah, I started, <laughs> yeah, obviously. And then into Dance of the... Because Arrival has to be... Uh, it has to be the first one because it's the introduction to the village for the audience as well. Yes. Dance of the Dead, because of the dialogue, I'm new here. And also the death threat mm. as well. You know, like, we're not messing around here. Yeah. You mess around with us and you, you will die, is what they're saying here, yes, aren't they? Yes. Then I've put Checkmate because he's still figuring out the world, who yeah. the prisoners are and who are the jailers. Yeah, that's the funny, it's an important thing for him to try and work out. It's mm. almost like it would be one of the first things he'd try to work out as a means to escape. Yeah. He needs to work out which ones are the actual... Yeah, I mean, you, you could who, put Checkmate second. Foe. You could put Checkmate second. I mean, they could mm. happen within days of each other. You know, he would still say, I'm new here, within weeks of being there. Yes. You know? And then I've put, at the end of this New to the Village, I've put The Girl Who Was Death. Ah. Like you, I've brought that forward because I think this is, it's still a benign attempt. There's no malice really in this episode. Mm. There's no escape attempt. There's no mind games. There's just voyeurism by the village. They've maybe just like starting to look at his compassion for people mm. as being a weakness, which they play on with all the, you know, the, the, the female the, yeah, characters. Yeah. And maybe that he has a soft spot you know, he wants to be this kind of father figure. And that can lead on to things like Chimes of Big Ben, yeah, where yeah. he looks after Nadia. Is that the, and I think that maybe is, is you know, a, a, it could be brought forward. Yes. Otherwise it just sticks out a little bit, but it can go anywhere, really. Yeah, I think it, it makes it a more important episode. So that's my first block. That's new to the village. Yeah. And I've put December slash January, question mark. And then I've got February and March. Yeah, can um, I read this out? Fucking with his sanity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, which they do, don't they? I mean, yeah. free for all, you know, they, they mess with his head, they play mind games, but he's still quite new to mm. the village. So this, this could actually be a little bit early. It could be. But, of course, it does state February the 10th. Yes. In this. So we know it's still within the early part of the year. Schizoid Man, again, mind games, and also takes place in yes. February. Yes, yeah. So they, they have to take place around the same same time. The general is uh, making a point. There's a point that he's making here rather than the village. It's not the village as an attempt on him. He's seeing the machinations of the village and he is striking back. Yeah. I wouldn't say in a, in a mind game sense, like he does with Hammer and uh, various other episodes, this, this is actually something that takes place, I think, a little bit earlier. Then the chimes of the Big Ben, where he's, I know this is episode two, but there's nostalgia for his own captivity. <laughs> um, yes. And, and arguably, maybe his final potential escape attempt. I know we've got many happy returns, but I'll come to that in a minute. But at this point, he doesn't know the location of the village. Mm. So it must still be before many happy returns because he's thinking about Lithuania and all that. And I yes, think, yeah. you know, when he gets back to London... And he starts talking about it. He hasn't got to that point where he's saying, I want to go back there, I want to find it. You know, he pulls the plug and the sound stops. So he knows that everything that's happened was all a con. So he has to start at square one anyway. And then the next episode, being Many Happy Returns, 
because now he knows it's not Lithuania or potentially not Lithuania and sat around the 28th of March, which, of course, is his birthday, you know, and he's disappeared. But it's his birthday, hence yes, the, the yeah. title. But, of course, time doesn't have to. I mean, this could all be th- moot because time doesn't necessarily in this allegory have any kind of significance. We know that the date there wasn't actually, was it February the 10th, wasn't actually mm. that day of the week. And it was in 65, but it wasn't in 66 or 67. Or well, it, I mean, how long would it have taken them to grow that moustache? <laughs> so maybe maybe, <laughs> yes. maybe many, many have returns should have been directly after the... the <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it depends, like I say, it depends on, you know, you could say these are weeks ahead after each other or they could be just the next day. We don't know, do we? And then the next block I've got is what I've classed the village starts to get desperate. Tables start to turn. A, B and C. I haven't put Colin Gordon's episode straight after the general, because a lot of people have done that. General in A, B and C. Oh, have they? I thought I was yeah. being incredibly clever. No, well, no, it, it, it does. It works, though. <laughs> yeah, it does yeah. work. Absolutely, it works. But maybe he's, you know, he's been punished and he's come back to kind of vindicate himself, maybe. But... Um, there's a line that that number two says, number six and I are old friends. Mm. It suggests that it's not concurrent, that they've met before, like with Leon McKern. Okay. Where it's like, I know you, mm. you know. Nothing to suggest, I don't think there's anything to suggest that they follow on from each other. And then you've got the episodes of Change of Mind and Living in Harmony, where he's, I think where he's given up this, you know, he's already been not back in the Chimes Big Ben. He's all, all and and with many happy returns, and he knows that every time he escapes, yeah. So how can he win? So he's got to basically destroy the village. It's not a case of breaking away from it. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's like that chess game. He knows that every move is blocked. So what can he do to, you know? And I think this is where he now starts to subvert the village to his own, you know. Um, this is where he plays or turns the tables on the village. So. And he does that with a change of in a change of mind. Yes. And also in, in living in harmony, where he sees through the conceits, and he starts to play the game, and then turns the tables on them. A little bit like he does in free for all, but I think they've got more of a control than him on free for all. And then the last block I've got here is six gets the upper hand. Uh, the villagers cease their mind games, and now we've just got straightforward kind of where he's part of the, of the narrative, but yeah. they're not necessarily finding or trying to find out why he's resigned as such. Mm. So you've got Hammond to Anvil, where he stumbles upon that girl killing herself. That's yes. not a conceit by the village. It's, he's he's like, no, you're going to pay for this. I'm going to make it my mission yes. to, pay, to make you pay for this. You will. And then you've got that utilitarian aspect in It's Your Funeral, where he puts aside his own kind of motivations to save the lives or save you know, the villagers being punished. Mm. These are the altruistic episodes, aren't they, where he's doing this to benefit other people, which he also does in Do Not Forsake Me as well. And this, the the dialogue here is that he's been away a year. So this actually now could be, if you put on the the fact that the evening scenes are dark, so you've got these dinner parties. So if that's eight, nine o'clock, it's going to be dark in winter, isn't it? Yes. So I'm thinking maybe that this is around December, January, that Janet's birthday. So we're coming up to that annual event of him being pulled out of society. But he also gets to utilise his skill set, his spy skill set, if, if he is a spy, in those three episodes, hmm. or his knowledge of, of how people operate. And I think the, the one argument that he is a spy is, is shown in Hammond to Anvil because he utilises spy techniques yeah, to, yeah. You know, to subvert number two's expectations and to make him fall in on, under his own weight of, <laughs> uh, of narcissism and uh, paranoia, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. 
And then, then find obviously then Once Upon a Time and Fallout and we start again with Arrival. So that that's my list. But I think it's, you know, it's not going to be, you know, some people will probably be listening, ah, but, ah, but, and that's fine. It's, that's it's fine. fine. I think the, I think, the way I look at it, that's how, that's my list. Yeah. It's, it's only because um, sort of other different channels and organisations, the six of one have got theirs. And mm. kind of, well, yeah, it'd be quite nice for us to have ours. Yes. It's not it's not like ours are right and yours no, is wrong. I don't but, think uh, anybody's order's right. I think the the problem is now is that after fifty odd years, I think that the actual broadcast order is the perceived right order. And I don't think you're ever gonna change anyone's minds. Oh no. You watch no, no, it on no. D V D or Blu ray, you're gonna watch it in the order that it was broadcast. But most people who um who broadcast it tend to sort of um I think the Horror Channel have got their own broadcast order, mainly yeah. because I think somebody put the wrong disc in the wrong slipcase. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't really matter, does it? It's, no, no, know, no. You it, can, it, you it can watch it in any order you want. And it, it does give you a sort of a personal sense of ownership. That you know, I, you know, I think it's and it's in a, in, in a tightly in a tightly benign way. It's mm. not a it's not a sort of a, right no a gatekeeper way like you say. It's uh, it's more like yeah, this this works for me. I quite like this. But what's interesting is if you watch these shows, if you watch something like um, Star Trek, which is not, it's not an anthology show. It's mm. you know it's yeah. There's aliens of the week and encounters of the week. I don't think anyone's ever really gone to Star Trek and gone actually that needs to be there. That needs to be before this episode, or you know that should be in this season. But with the prisoner, I think I'm not entirely sure where this running order idea has come from. I think it's probably because the production order was so totally different to the broadcast order. Mm. I mean, it would have started. But that's that's normal in television production. Yeah, but I think maybe, I think people analyse the prisoner have over the last fifty years analysed the prisoner just a lot more than they would have done. Maybe maybe because there's there's only the seventeen. You yeah. can actually it's a sizable sand. It's a big enough, small enough sandwich yeah. to be able to actually say I can actually eat all that yeah. whereas uh, something like the Avenger how many of, including the Ian Hendry right through to the giant Lemley you're looking at hundreds mm. and for crying out I, I can't who could face that whereas this is 17 I could do this but it's 17 it's quality not quantity isn't it always Chris yes. always I'd rather have 17 episodes of The Prisoner arguably 13 episodes of The Prisoner <laughs> yeah. um, and I'd still love it just as much yeah, you know, and and I think yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that puts me off a lot of these shows, is that yeah, I have watched every episode of Randall and Hopkirk. I love that show. It's I mm. don't know why. I mean, it's oh, because it's lovely. It it's is lovely. lovely. I love the and, and I think that's down to the two leads. It's that relationship that what sells it, and yes. just how uh, Kenneth Cope plays Monty Hopkirk. There's some very endearing but sad that this lovely guy is is dead, but he's still able to kind of pop up and yeah. make jokes. And, and he can't, you know, they, they did it quite nicely with the Vic Reeves remake, actually. There's, mm. the, the, that haunting kind of, uh, it's all fun and japes, but there's my wife and she can't see me. Yeah, I love her still and uh, I can't do anything, to, you know. I know, there is, and it's, there's pathos, isn't there, within that? that yeah. And that comedy. And it was, it was nice, nicely done. But um, Department S, that's another show I've watched all of. Just making my way through um, Man in a Suitcase. I love Man in a Suitcase. Yeah. I used to do it when I, in, the, in the dark days when I used to smoke. I used to actually leave my cigarette up right on the table <laughs> simply because McGill did McGill it. McGill did it, yeah. And that, that makes me look really cool. <laughs> my God, he aged, though, didn't he? Yeah. I couldn't believe. Actor. Oh, he was fantastic. But I, th- I remember in The Untouchables, he was the Irish cop, isn't yeah. he? That, that's McGill? That's Richard Bradford, I think, is one of those actors who should have been more famous. 
He should have done more films. Yeah, I think he, he had he had the he had a proper he, was, he had a proper boxer's way about him. Yeah, he was a real scrapper, but he was super cool. And there's dialogue that he got. It, Man in a Suitcase really holds up. Yeah, and he was so super super cool. And there's uh, a, and it's, it's a, I've, I've got the Blu-ray, and it's always lovely to watch London. It's yeah. always to, to see that that snapshot in high def. Of, yes, of, of a bygone age. I was just, uh, very, this very day, chatting to somebody on Twitter about the satanic rites of Dracula. Mm. And I think he was one of, you know, for all its many flaws, you, you, you're watching London as it was. Yeah. People usually, obviously, film at about six in the morning when yeah. no one's about. And you are watching London as exactly as yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and as, so it becomes a wonderful time capsule. Funny enough, my ex-wife, her, uh, she went to drama school and one of her drama teachers was in the satanic rites of Dracula. <laughs> so that, is, that, that qualified him to teach drama, didn't it? Yeah, well, what else do you need? <laughs> <laughs> What's your IMDb listing? Oh, I was in Taggart and... Uh, <laughs> satanic You're in. Fine. Break their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that throughout my career, my, you know, when I, I was working in theatre and then I worked in broadcasting, for a couple of years, is the people you meet, and, and I've always found this with theatre, is that you meet people who are either on the way up or the way down, yeah. you know? <laughs> so there were shows where, like, you know, um, I met uh, Simon Pegg and Julia Davis when they were doing uh, Steve Coogan's mm, show, mm. before they were, before Spaced, before, you know, and you get to meet these people, and then you see them in something a couple of years later, and you're like, oh, that's the guy who was on so But then you get in the other end, you get these people whose careers are starting to come down. Mm. But the, the one lovely thing I found is that you meet these people and you start talking to them and they will tell you these stories. I used to go and get coffee for Paul Shane and that, ah. and that evolved a nice idea, I think. That, that <laughs> evolved into him then saying, like, day one was, hey, kid, can you go and get us a coffee? You know, give me some money and I get him a coffee. And then the next day, I'd do it again, because I, I was a follow-spot op for this show. I, in fact, claim to fame, you know that famous uh, video of um, Paul Shane going, baby, baby, yeah, that was on yeah, Pebble yeah. Mill at one. It was that <laughs> show that was touring, and it was, it was um, Paul Shane and Mike Holloway, who mm. was in The Tomorrow People. And it was this, um, t- you know, period piece set in the 60s, right? I think it was about, like, um, set around 63 when the Beatles were emerging. I can't remember what it was called. It was something like Ferry Cross the Mersey or something, something like that. You know, these kids in Liverpool discovering the Beatles. And Paul Shane was the caretaker who would just come in and tell jokes and witty comments. And then it would culminate and they sang uh, You've Lost That Loving Feeling as part of the stage. But of course, he wasn't on stage for most of it. Mm. So he sat in the stage door with, with the doorman, Die. He was this really kind of straight-laced Welshman. He was like, right, lad, how are you going? Right. And uh, Paul Shane would make me go and get him coffee. No, he asked, and I, and, uh, but that turned into every night. And then he was like, get yourself one. And I was like, oh, OK. So I get a coffee. I didn't really drink coffee then, but I thought, well, Paul Shane is buying me a coffee. Yeah, I'm, you know, who, I'm gonna have who would say no and to then, that? D- and then Di had one as well. So we just sat there, because I didn't have any cues for about 40 minutes in this show. It was like only the top and, uh, end of the show that the follow spots were needed. But So, of course, I'm just sat in the stage door chatting to Paul Shane and and die and he's telling all these stories about his career and filming Heidi High and of course I was you know I was yeah. huge into television and, and listening to these stories you know and it was it was you could pinch yourself <laughs> you know it's like this is a guy I grew up watching you know Heidi High and I think it was on a Sunday night oh yes you know 
But there are loads of people like that, and you'd spend time talking to, you know. And their career. I mean, I think Willie Nelson turned up one day to do a show. Yeah, the Willie Nelson. Really? Yeah, the oh, Willie Nelson. And of course, there was a lot of people my age who didn't even know who he was. Fools. I know. I said, "This is the guy yeah, he wrote always on my mind." And he wrote, you know, all these songs, and he's a you know famous country western singer. And it, it, it was like, it's I'm not trying to make it sound like a humble prag at all. I'm just. My point is. It was a lovely kind of starting point for a career, like you did. I mean, you played poker with Kevin Bacon, didn't mm-hmm. you, and stuff like that. Is meeting these people and having these kind of windows into this world uh, that inspire you, and kind of, you know, Richard Todd. I remember being in another one as well. Oh yeah, he was. Uh, wasn't he in the Dambusters? He he was Guy Guy Gibson. Yeah, Gibson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was the he was the main Dambuster. But I remember sort of like I didn't really know who he was, and I remember. Um, leaving work one night and he was walking out with me and I was talking to him and my mum just I got into the car and my mum was paying me she went was that Richard Todd? I was like yeah do you know him? she was like in her face I was like oh. you know she was like blown away because he was quite an icon wasn't he in the, in the 50s it was, it was, it was, it, he was the sort of um, Richard Burton I suppose of, of those sort of prim stuff, stiff upper lip Brit yeah. my mum's like films my mum's the... like to my dad do you know you never guess who Chris it's Richard Todd and I'm like and some of these people had never heard of because there was no internet. There was no, no IMDb. No, no. You know, it was like, oh, you'd, you'd read the programs and you say, oh, you know, uh, screen credits include. But, oh, yeah, I've heard that film, but I've never seen it. It's not as if you can go on yeah. Netflix or whatever. But um, I think I always find those, those conversations lovely. And, I, and that was, it was quite nice when we were speaking to Darren Nesbitt. It reminded me of those kind of conversations where they open up to you a little bit. I'll tell you these stories. Or like Roger Moore when he that unbroadcastable story <laughs> that we can't tell you about. So no, no, what no, he no, said. No, no. But things like you know, things like that. <laughs> Is there any part of that story you could No. Sign a, no. <laughs> we'll just have to leave that a mystery like a prisoner, <laughs> won't we? <laughs> yes, it's best for it to be a conundrum wrapped up in the make well. Well, I think we've reached the end of the road. That's it. So I think we've been talking and, you know, our four fans have been... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, this, this, is the, this is the end of the podcast, mm. but um, maybe this, this, the second life of this will be on Twitter. You know, keep, stay in touch. We'll... We do intend, don't we? To, I mean, we've been talking. We, we will come back in some form. And, and I don't know necessarily... I mean, it depends what happens with The Prisoner. We've talked maybe about looking at some of the Columbo episodes, haven't we, with... Uh, well, he's, yeah, because he had a... I mean, he, not just as a, a guest star. Mm. I think he was the most... He did the most... I think he did five. Mm. But he directed a few as well. And it was a sort of... It, it was his relationship with Folk was probably the relationship he should have had with with Mark Steen. Yeah. It was more Tomlin actually. It, it was it was another. It was a bit like when um, when Paul McCartney started hanging out with Elvis Costello. Yes, for, for briefly he had another partnership that yeah. worked. A new um, Lennon. Yes, yes, lasted one album. Yeah, or even half. But there's, there's plenty of potential to come back, and probably some specials. We'll probably just do them as, as feature length. Uh, yeah, episodes. we'll cut, you know, sort of some bank holiday specials or something. Yeah. For, all right, the Christmas, could you do a Christmas, Christmas special? special? I'd personally just like to thank all the Twitter followers. Yeah. I mean, people like, I, mean, I just assumed were friends of Kai's. Turns <laughs> out <laughs> they weren't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, well, like, yeah. I, I think of you, I do think of you as friends. I think, almost more than 
human beings I actually have physical interactions with. Is there, but I find that quite lovely because, I, I mean, the negative experience that people have of Twitter... You know, when I was talking to you about uh, some people that you've been engaging with, I just thought you were like friends from uni. Or no, that's my on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. That's but, what I mean. And, but I found that I found that lovely. It is. And you do. You have, you have moments sometimes when they go off Twitter for a few days, and you think, Are "You okay? <laughs> yeah. You're right, mate." And, uh, <laughs> but it's like, because you're kind of your friends. You, it's, it's it's like how like us mm. again circularity. You're going back to the first episode. How did we become friends? Well, mm. we talked about the prisoner, mm. and we had that in common. And it's like. I always find that when you're at a wedding or a, a group, with a group of people you don't know, I, mm. I tend to sort of start using film lines, yeah. throwing them into my conversation <laughs> until somebody actually says, is that yours? Ah, oh, yes. You got it. Bingo. Let's, let's, let's hang out with you for an hour. Um, and Twitter's basically that. You, know, you find yeah. people who you've, you've, you've got all these things in common, all these shared, you like the same films. But that's how Twitter, I think that's how Twitter should be. It's how it works. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's uh, what it should be used for, not, you know, you're an idiot because you think this. Yeah, no, no. Or pulling I'm, people down. It's, it's lovely that you can find your tribe, uh, your people, yeah. and communicate with them. And, and I think that's, that's been a lovely part of this process is meeting people virtually, as it were, Yes, and having these conversations and having them enjoy what what we're doing. And do you know what it has? I mean, this is I did uh, any day now. When when when's this sort of? I think your interpretations of this are so totally ininformed. I've been, you know, there's no that, that, that sort you know, of we've twist. not had not one, one, not one. Everybody's been, been very supportive. Everybody's very nice. <laughs> Everybody's been very supportive, and you know, we've had some private messages and. Been all lovely, and you know, obviously we've responded to every single one because you know, yeah, quite it's, rightly it's so. Been, it's been such a treat to sort of to, to get to sort of meet you in inverse commas. Well, ah, as this is the last episode next week on Monday the eleventh of July mm-hmm. at seven thirty, we're going to have a Twitter Space, and Chris is going to have to explain what this means. So if you're unfamiliar know. with the concept of Twitter Space, and we'll promote it during the week as well, is is just go on to Twitter. And there'll be a link on on the page and you click to join it and we'll have a live conversation. So a lot of people have commented that they feel like our this is a bit like a a, a virtual pub that we're (laughs) sitting across having a a pint of stout or whatever. And we'd like to invite you, the Twitter followers, our friends, our virtual friends, our prisoner devotee peers to join us for that. And we'll have, you know, probably about an hour conversation just back and forth and you know, we can listen, you know, to each other's interpretations, what you think about the prisoner or how it's affected you. And, you know, obviously don't sort of speak at once. <laughs> Just be chaos. Now, how, how Twitter spaces work, the, the excellent Uncanny podcast, I don't know if you've heard this, it's Danny no, Robbins no. about Supernatural. He, he does Twitter spaces. So basically you'll, we'll host it and then you basically come and join in and you can comment and you can, you can raise a virtual hand and then we, we invite you into that conversation and maybe have like three or four people at a time just having that conversation. I say we. This will be Chris doing this. If I did this, I'd just kind of delete the yeah. whole thing. By but I think, I think it'll be a nice way to invite everybody into that virtual space yes. and have a final kind of conversation together and get to hear people. Yeah, no, that would be lovely. Talk, sound you'll, like. you'll, be, you'll, be enti- you'll be most welcome to us. So that's Monday, the 11th of July at 7.30pm on Twitter. So just go uh, to Twitter. UK time for uh, any... any... I apologise. So if you're on the Pacific seaboard, <laughs> if you're on the Pacific time, then that will be 11.30am. Uh, if you're on the east coast of mm. the US, 
That's going to be at 2.30pm, 7.30pm for GMT. And if you're in Europe, um, you're an hour ahead, then obviously it's 8.30. So hopefully that's the, the best time for everybody to kind of get together. I apologise you're in Australia. Yes. Oh, there's oh, four people we have in the Ukraine uh, yeah. who are listening. Have we got four? Well, it's it's amazing when you look at the the, the information about where people are listening. It's like a guy in Finland. Yeah, just one. <laughs> There's just one from Finland. Whoever you are, <laughs> try, seriously join us. <laughs> yeah, just everybody. If you just come in and join us, and you know, we'll we'll have some topics to have a conversation about. Yeah. And I think that'd be lovely. Bring your own drinks and snacks. Yes, <laughs> yes. We're not licensed premises, <laughs> not even virtually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, um, thank you so much for uh, for for putting up with us and um, for joining in. And I hope I hope. I hope if you've enjoyed it half as much yeah. as we've enjoyed it, and I really have enjoyed it immensely. Very um, final just special thanks, Gordon Milton, this, uh, this earworm that you're probably humming yes. as you walk down the street. That was Gordon Milton's. He played all that himself. Yeah. He's an ex-student of mine, mm. believe it or not, and he's from South Africa. He's, he's a hilarious yes. guy. Knows his guitars. He's got some fantastic kit. A brilliant musician as well. So... Uh, the fact he did this for us, free yeah. as well. Thank you so yeah. much, Gordon. Really, really means a lot. But it's also, I mean, I think we should do a, put a 12-inch well, version of that. Well, Gordon's wife, Candida Jane, uh, she has, she's worked with some of Kate Bush's. That's right, and yeah. Guy Pratt, the, the bassist of Pink Floyd. Um, he, he's played on her album, so Candida Jane, you'd probably find her on, on Spotify. And, yeah, uh, there's a, uh, they're putting out an album sort of song by song at the minute. Yeah. It's really, yeah. the production on it's fantastic. Oh, it's fantastic. And her voice as well, it's great. Yeah. But uh, no, that was lovely. So it was really kind of him. And uh, Jemima Duncalf, who did all the uh, our wonderful logo, which some of the guests have commented on. Who did your logos? Mm. Uh, very, very, very kind of her as well. So, uh, And uh, she's on, I think she's got her own website as well, hasn't she? Yes, if you need anything designing. Uh, she's a, she's the graphic artist for you. Yeah, so you, you can find her work at jemimaduncalf.com. So that's J-E-M-I-M-A. D-U-N-C-A-L-F dot com. And you'll, you'll see her all her artwork and her social media connections there. Indeed. Worth checking out. We've also got to thank Darren Nesbitt and Jay Merrow. Yes, our, our inaugural guest. That was what we should say. Is when we interviewed Darren Nesbitt, as soon as it was finished, Chris and I just kind of gave each other the biggest hug <laughs> because we'd never done it before. We'd never interviewed anyone. It was my first interview. Yeah. Was like, <laughs> both had these dry mouths yeah. going, do, do we do okay? So it made the Jane Merrow interview a lot easier. Yeah, we were seasoned pros by then. Yeah. I felt a lot more confident going into that interview. Actually. Yeah, but it was, so, it was lovely for them to agree to do it. Yes. And also, of course, to, to Robert Fairclough, to uh, to Dave Barry, to... Rick Davey. To Rick Davey. Rick Davey's been a I mean, valuable resource, especially not, with the Unmutual website as well. Yeah, it's not just that they didn't have to sort of even get back to our letter mm. or anything like that. <laughs> they just, they got back and they were so supportive. Yes. Uh, and bearing in mind, we we've never met these people. No, again, it's like it's like Twitter, <laughs> and, it, and it's and it's brilliant. But yeah. uh, it's 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 a really you know, really kind mm. feedback and and help. Uh, Rick Davies been sending sent us some DVDs. Yeah. And, and Dave Barry sent us some lovely photos of uh, from 1967. And yeah, and like, it's just it's been so. so such a fantastic, utterly fantastic, fulfilling experience. This and uh, meeting everybody—it's been—it's been been part of a community. Yeah. It really has. Thank you also to Anthony Briley from Six of One, who's yes. Port American organizer. Also, like to thank Lucy Tomlin. 
Yes. Even though she didn't, uh, unfortunately, a schedule, um, the, the schedules didn't work out in terms of us interviewing her. But she was very gracious and given us her time. And she answered some questions about her father, David, um, which helped us when we were structuring. Yes. It was a shame that we didn't get to speak to her because that would have been a lovely. That would have been lovely. Lovely. I think uh, you had a, you had a theory that you'd spotted a, a Hitchcockian David Tomlin cameo. cameo yes, uh, which was sent to Lucy and says, "Is this, is this your dad?" Uh, no, oh, uh, damn. <laughs> half an hour of material based on that. So that that was nice of it. And of course, Ian Rakoff, who we've spoken to as well. Again, that was you know we weren't able to. Yeah, to interview couldn't him. quite get the, uh, the 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 slots right. But he was a a, a, a gentleman clearly, mm. and it would have been. Wonderful to have uh, to invent. Maybe in the future that maybe mm. we will. And uh, and lastly, again, thank you for all your support. Yes, let's 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 keep the conversation going. Let's uh, let's uh, let's keep keep the legacy alive. And uh, there's um, that's the lovely thing with the prisoner, the way it evolves. That we, we don't quite know what could be round the corner. It but no, no, it's been a, a fantastic experience. I've really enjoyed it actually, and uh, I've never really listened to a lot of podcasts in the past. But mm. since we started doing this, I've started listening to a lot of podcasts. Yes, and me. To, to almost to the point where it's been, a, I realise it's been about three months since I've listened to an album. Yeah. So, whoa, I need to start getting back on this. Yeah. Because there's some of the ones, it's, it's weird. In some podcasts, you start, you start to feel like you're almost like making mates. Mm. You get so, so used to it. And you get, obviously, the subject, you, 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 you're on like minds. Yeah. And you think, well, it'd be nice to hang out. You sort of, you're hanging out with people with, when you get the right podcast. Yeah. I, hope, I hope that's been the case with this. Yeah. See, one of my one of my favourites is uh, "Looks Unfamiliar." Yeah, <laughs> I love yes. listening to that. It's cause, yes, because that's it's. It, I like the format, and I like Tim Worthington's kind of knowledge. He's one yes, of those which people is vast, vast that he'll just throw these comments in. Yeah. So that's that's one. If you like television and. Looks unfamiliar. It's it's one where it's <laughs> where you remember something mm. from television that not many people do. Or you, when you bring it up, they go, mm, "No, I don't know that." And he basically does the investigation, and it's very it's very entertaining. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's, he's he's a fantastic guy to follow on Twitter mm. every single day. It's like, ah, I think more, more more than anything, what's what's been wonderful is to kind of rediscover. It's been about ten years since I've actually seen the mm. prisoner. It's been wonderful to go back mm. and uh, and revisit an old friend, you know. Even even the times when I've seen it before, I may have missed a few episodes, but it, I haven't actually sat down and methodically watched the first, all, oh, all the seventeen since probably the first time I did. I think the last time I actually watched it beginning to end was when the two thousand and seven uh, Blu-ray yeah. release came out, the fortieth. Yeah, but even then, sometimes I'd skip episodes yeah. and stuff. I'd like change of mind. Yes, sort of, yes. Oh, and do not forsake it. me. Mm. Uh, which, uh, but so you, I mean, yeah. So I mean, even some of the weaker episodes, mm. we found little sort of little gold nuggets within them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there isn't, there isn't, like we said before, it's there's not no, a bad prisoner. There's, there's no zero star <laughs> prisoner episode, uh, which is uh, very few series you could say that about. Yes, absolutely. No, it's been. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to really miss this. Yeah. But we'll, like I say, we'll come back and we'll do something. We'll do something else, or maybe follow on and do some more of uh, maybe more Magoon focused, maybe. Yeah, it's a, a kind of last thought on Magoon, really. You kind of think, because he never really did. I saw the classic thing, he went to America and then became, he was carried on his star status mm-hmm. there. 
became a director really of, of TV did not only the Colombo who said he did a few other things as well but he, he never sort of really did anything anything like this he, he, he became more like a professional if you hear him in interviews he sort of clearly knows what he knows all about the uh, the studios and the networks and the scheduling and this and that and the, he knows about telly mm. I, I always love him he says telly instead yeah. of TV but he's just became a sort of a, a, a professional. Yeah. And he was in some interesting films, Scanners, obviously. Yes. But he was in just an awful lot of... Well, like, I suppose he didn't need to work. He didn't need it's to... It's not so much work. It's kind of what he, what he created mm. with The Prisoner is such a, a, a staggeringly, I think, a very important... But do you not think... I mean, do you not think he peaked with The Prisoner in terms of creatively? That's what I mean. I yeah. think... I, I don't know if it's... Um, where could you go? Where, how can you top the prisoner? Yeah, do you think it's in? He just got out of his system. So well, like, well, I look can at just Ku- look at Stanley Kubrick. Uh, you know, when you've got something like Doctor Strangelove, which he built. You know, he'd done a, films before Killer's Kiss and mm. Lolita and things like that. But you know, building up to Strangelove, which is arguably well, past glory as well. But you know, he's he's kind of learning his craft. He's building up, and each one is then building on what he's achieved. Kubrick spent a couple of years researching. You know, reading the books, listening to music, getting the ideas, getting the cast. I mean, famously spent a couple of years on the uh, AIM papers mm. and then had scrapped it because of... Schindler's um, List. List. So in Napoleon. And Napoleon, yeah, Napoleon. And, and I think, like, in this investment of how I can build on my creativity. And then Barry Lyndon with the um, the use of the uh, Mitchell BNC cameras with the, the lenses shooting in candlelight. Yeah. It was unheard yeah. of. Unheard of. But it's beautiful, and he's got the you know it's almost like Georgian painting styles within. Yeah, the way that the under- framing. Yeah, you know, and he's constantly top. I mean, yeah, people say yeah, he peaked with two thousand one, or he peaked with. He, he didn't. No, he he was continually building his craft, and I think McGowan, I think, arguably peaked with the prisoner, and then didn't carry on that kind of exploration of of television. I think he was like, I've done this now. Yeah. He yeah. was. I think he was happy just to make good TV and maybe to mm-hmm. be a, a good actor. I mean, he 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 still continued to be. I mean, Peter Falk talks about him. Yeah, I think one of the quotes in the book I'm reading is he's up, he was a mountain of an actor. Mm-hmm. He was. I think he was enormously well respected. He got two Emmys uh, in America for you know. So he was highly regarded. Mm-hmm. But he just never had that above the... I mean, like I said, with The Prisoner, we said before, he was the highest-paid actor on in the world, mm-hmm. TV actor. So he was, a, he was a global star. I wouldn't say he was a global star in the 70s. No. He was just a sort of a, almost almost going into the realms of character actor mm. and jobbing TV director. And you think, it's, it's a bit like seeing sort of Medigliani sort of uh, having selling sort of caricatures next to the pier. <laughs> it's like, um, I thought you were a bit better than that, actually. <laughs> so, well, do you know what? I did, I said what I had to say. Yeah. I, I mean, I, he did that, that kind of cultural um, resurgence, didn't he, in 95 uh, with Braveheart. Yes. You know, and I remember reading things about who was Patrick Moore and all this kind of stuff. And not in a, you know, who is he? I suppose it was, it was kind of a, that would have been a bump off from the 25th anniversary when it started mm. to be... Re- it sort of, it kind of came back into the public conscience. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of, and you know, people. If you're into the prisoner, you kind of well, McGowan. He's like a, you know, a demigod. He's like this extraordinary, 
and the, but the, but the post prisoner stuff just it's not so much doesn't back it up. It's kind of you think I get I just get the sense he's kind of I've, I've I've what else do you want from me? Yeah, I've literally. Well, I suppose I've, it's like after Leonardo da Vinci paints the Mona Lisa. It's like, <laughs> like, you know what? Mm. I'm just going to make helicopters from now on. I can't yeah. be bothered with this. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I cracked that smile thing. Mm. <laughs> you, but you couldn't. I mean, I mean, he probably realised this. And it's the same when you've got people like ABBA coming back and the Beatles coming back in '95, whenever it was, and you know everybody wants them. And that old adage, you know, always leave the audience wanting more. In some cases, you can't come back because mm. how do you top the achievement that you created? So yes, in the uh, same spirit of always leaving them wanting more. Goodbye. Goodbye. Free for All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All.